Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. As the co-host of a jam band podcast, I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm still pretty new to the world of CBD. But Sunset Lake CBD is a great way to give it a test run. Sunset Lake is a family-owned farm in Vermont that started as a dairy supplier for Ben & Jerry's. A couple years ago, they got into growing hemp for CBD, and they've got a whole bunch of products available in their online shop at sunsetlakecbd.com. Seriously, I had no idea there were so many different ways to use CBD. Sunset Lake has tincture and salve, gummies, CBD coffee, even flour, keef, and pre-rolls, if smoking is more your thing. Their hemp is 100% pesticide-free and organic, and everything is lab-tested so you know exactly what you're ingesting. In July, they're donating 4.2% of their online sales to the Drug Policy Alliance, a pretty good cause. So far, I've tried the gummies and found them very mellow after long bike rides. I also gave some of their pet tincture to my sister-in-law for her super high-strung dogs who seem to enjoy it as well. If you too want to sample some Sunset Lake CBD products, we've got a promo code, VAULT15, that will give you 15% off anything in their store. Again, that's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code VAULT15. Hi everyone, this is Steve from 36 from the Vault, and look, I know a lot of you out there are very hairy people. You're Wookiees for crying out loud. And now that you've been stuck in quarantine, you're even hairier than usual. It's time to get a nice shave. So let me tell you about a company called Harry's. If you switch to Harry's for your razor needs, you're gonna save a ton of money. You're gonna save enough money to buy 26 cups of coffee in New York City. You're gonna save enough money to pay for six months of your Netflix subscription. Uh, so, if you want to get involved in Harry's, where's a good place to get started? Well, right now, Harry's is offering a free trial set 
to our listeners. Uh, what you want to do is you want to go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV. Again, that's harrys.com backslash 36FTV, and you're going to get this trial set. Now, what comes in the trial set? You get the weighted ergonomic handle, you get the five-blade razor, you get the rich lathering shave gel, and of course, you get the travel blade cover. What is the travel blade cover? I don't know, but I think you should order the set to find out. So what you want to do is, again, go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV and start shaving and saving today. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to be comparing Radiohead and, and The Grateful Dead, which I don't know if that has ever happened in the history of podcasts <laughs> or music criticism, but I'm excited to get into it. We're breaking new ground. And I was thinking about, obviously, you know, Tom York is the Jerry of the band. I think that's pretty clear cut, but I was going through the other band members and I was thinking like who the Bob would be. And initially I thought, well, Johnny Greenwood is the Bob because he's the second most recognizable member, uh, guitar player, obviously. Uh, He's the youngest member of the band, just like Bob is in The Dead. Mm -hmm. However, it occurred to me that I think Ed O'Brien is a better Bob because I think their guitar playing styles are similar, that Mm. they're not conventional rhythm guitar players. Uh, We all know about Bob Weir. Uh, you know, being a very eccentric but exciting second guitar player in the dead. And Ed O'Brien, I write about this in my book, and this is the first time we're going to mention my book in this podcast, right? by the way, we're probably going to be mentioning that a lot <laughs> over the next uh, few hours on this show, but um, you know, he's known as this atmospheric guitar player, uh, playing unusual parts, again, not a traditional rhythm guitar player. So I kind of think that Johnny is the fill of the band absolutely yeah i mean i think uh my my take on it was that everybody in radiohead is a fill uh so that's but that's cheating a little bit just because they're all kind of like the music nerds that are into like avant-garde music and uh willing to experiment but you know in part after reading your book and in part after watching today's show that we're going to talk about uh bonnaroo 2006 uh i totally agree i think ed is he's the one adding color to the mix, right? And that's I think Bob even described himself as the one that adds a color and finds the space between uh, the more prominent members of the band and just you know does does that little support like the secret weapon stuff, the secret ingredient that lifts everybody up. Uh, and I was yeah, I was really fascinated to watch what he contributes because he's not as you say the first or even the second band member that Radiohead. You, you think of when you're listening to Radiohead, but he, he he's adding quite a bit to the mix. And I think, like Bob, he's the most rock and roll guy mm. in Radiohead. Like you you said that everyone in Radiohead is kind of like a fill, <laughs> right? Which I, think, which I think is right to some degree. Although I think Ed, and I mean this as a compliment, he has maybe the most basic tastes of anyone in the band. Like he's <laughs> the guy. Like when I interviewed him, you know, he'll talk about you too earnestly is like enjoying their music and, and he'll, he'll talk about like like the Rolling Stones and like other classic rock artists and, and really studying them and appreciating them he's also a big Fish fan mm-hmm. uh, and he hasn't talked about the dead actually when he talks about improvisational music which he 
is, which is something that he talked about when I interviewed him. It's something that he wanted to pursue had he been able to do a solo tour this year. Like he was excited about uh, the possibilities of that. And I think he actually did some shows earlier this year, and uh, he caught COVID during that time. <laughs> like he did a small promotional tour and like got yeah. caught, caught, caught COVID and fortunately recovered and is doing well now. Um, but yeah, he mentioned Fish in a couple interviews being an inspiration in that regard. He hasn't talked about the dead, though. I wonder if he has dug into the Dick's picks at all or gone on re-listen <laughs> and, and checked out some, some tapes. Uh, love to have well, that you, on and talk about that. Yeah, you got his number, uh, or at least his publicist's number. We could uh, <laughs> patch in an Ed O'Brien interview uh, before we put this this episode out in the world. But Yeah, I'm going to yeah, fire right. off an email while we're recording this. And if by any chance she responds, <laughs> we'll patch Ed in. Splice we'll like, it in. We're like, hey, Ed, we assume you've already been listening to 36 from the vault. <laughs> so you're probably, you know, all with us, all listening to all these dicks picks. But yeah, like, how do you feel about the dead? How, do you feel like they've influenced you in any regard? That, that, that'd be great. So yeah, I think that Ed would certainly be the only member of Radiohead that I'd feel comfortable bringing up the Grateful Dead with. Like, I feel like sure. he'd be down to talk about it. Whereas I think Tom York would probably, you know, give some sort of, like, menacing look. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, like, a snarky, like, put-down to that. Just, they would just sneer. Yeah, Johnny and Tom would just sneer at you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't Yeah, I don't think... I mean, I think as, like, uh, you know, the only kind of hippie music that Tom York likes is Neil Young. Like, he's a big Neil Young fan. Sure, yeah. I think that's as far as he'll venture into the hippie wilds. But, yeah, I... I and I could be wrong. Maybe he loves the dead. You know, maybe he's got like a Wake of the Flood poster, uh, at you know, hanging at his uh, <laughs> estate in Oxford or something. But I doubt it. I I feel pretty sure, like certain that he's not a deadhead. Well, but like I always be. say, like he is a middle he is a middle aged dad. And then, like if you're a middle aged dad, you have like I would say what eighty to ninety percent chance that you get into a dead phase. So that's true. He's That's been a true. dead. He's been a dad for a while, but uh, maybe his dead phase. It, he's gonna come back from the pandemic, just full on wook. It's true, man. Like, <laughs> you know, like does Tom York does he mow his own lawn? You know, maybe he's mowing his lawn, puts the earbuds in, puts on Dick's Picks Eight, just digs the acoustic <laughs> set that goes into the awesome. Like he's like, oh, good loving. This cover's not gonna be any good. Then he hears it. It's amazing. <laughs> Yep, yeah. and then good, and Radiohead will be playing "Good Lovin'" when they <laughs> get back on the road for their their encore. Well, I was yeah, gonna say just, too that like, like Ed O'Brien, going back to him being the Bob, he's the one. I can't imagine anyone in Radiohead playing a Chuck Berry cover, but Ed is the one I can. You know, he's the closest one I think that could come to that. <laughs> you know, like him. Land down some, uh, you know, promised land. I could see Ed O'Brien maybe doing that. It's like a ten percent chance where the other guys are like, you know, less than one percent chance. But yeah, Ed, I could maybe give him a ten percent chance. Of, like uh, uh, of that, yeah, of, it, of, of, of getting some old time rock and roll. Yeah, get some short shorts on. <laughs> you know, playing play a promised land. It's like just trying to imagine Radiohead opening a show with Promised Land. <laughs> you know, or, or, or Tom's. My, yeah, Tom singing "Little Red Rooster." Oh my god, <laughs> that's what comes to mind. Uh, it would be a haunting rendition, haunting in a different way. Yep, just like a blip, uh, like a like a blippy beat 
you know, right. and uh, some like Aphex Twin type affectations, <laughs> but it's Little Red Rooster. Is it too late to have Amar do uh, Radiohead doing Little Red Rooster for our bumper music? Oh man, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We got okay. We're gonna stop recording this episode. We got we got we to help with Amar. Get we'll some, circle uh, back. <laughs> Amar, we need Kid A meets Little Red Rooster. Right. Can you do that? That's a prompt. The worst music of all time. <laughs> that would absolutely be that, without question. Well, we're off to a great start. We've already gotten to the worst music of all time. Uh, should we introduce the uh, introduce the show? Yes, this is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. And uh, it's our Curveball episode. Yeah, number two. Yep, talking about Radiohead. And, like, can we just say it wasn't my idea to talk about Radiohead? I have a book coming out called This Isn't Happening. I think it's already out, actually, by the time this episode posts. But it wasn't my idea to just shoehorn Radiohead into your Precious Grateful Dead podcast for book promo. It was it was your idea, wasn't it? Can we say that? It was. That? I was lobbying hard for it. And, of course, I knew the book was coming out. And, you know, I want to help help with the book promo. Sweet friend. Good, You're a sweet be friend. Be a good co-host. Good co-host. Good friend. Yes. Uh I also I'm I'm gonna have a little uh, a little uh, book review corner here because Steve Ooh. was kind enough to share the uh, advanced PDF of the book and I'll buy copies. I always buy copies of Steve's books. So oh, wow. typically typically Steve's books are great uh, Father's Day gifts and uncle <laughs> gifts. Your cool uncle, and maybe I could get away with my cool uncle on this one, but uh, I think the fathers and the father-in-law uh, are not gonna be. Uh, really Radiohead target audience here. So I'm going to have to be a little more creative with who I buy your books for this time around. But uh, let me just say, Steve, I know I'm biased, but I really enjoyed the book. I loved oh, it. It thanks, was great. Man. Thank you. I want to, I want to point out a couple things. One, uh, you were amazingly had the foresight uh, to write about basically the perfect band and the perfect album for the like intense dystopia of 2020. And I know that you wrote most of it uh, before, you know, the shit really hit the fan here. All so, of it. All of yeah, it. Was, exactly. it. It was turned in. And I thought, yeah, like 2019 is pretty bad. And I wrote it, yeah, I wrote it mainly last year. And now I'm like, what was I complaining about? 2019. <laughs> right. Going outside, going to bars and shows, no face right. masks. It was, yeah. it was heaven in 2019. It was a it was a happier time, uh, but yeah, I mean you do it. Obviously, Radiohead is a very bleak band. It's a band that has been telling us for decades now that the world is like becoming darker and worse, <laughs> and basically predicting all of the alienation and uh, you know living experiencing the world purely through technology that we're stuck in right now this year. Uh, and you talk about all these things, and you do it. You know, more impressively, uh, without getting melodramatic and heavy-handed about it, which I feel like is a really easy trap to fall into. So well, thank that's you. number one that I really admire about the book. Number two, this is a book that it's, it's, you know, in one sense, it's a making of Kid A. In one sense, it's a biography of Radiohead, uh, their entire career. Talk about their, you know, from their origins to, you know, the current day. Uh, but it never feels like one of those, like, dry procedural this happened then this happened types of books which you know i read a lot of music biographies and a lot of them you know just kind of naturally fall into that sort of lazy structure uh but this book doesn't do that if you're worried about that steve is brilliant at structuring a book and going in and out of kid a and not just going you know 
in perfect chronological order, but dipping in and out. And I love that about it. And I just love the way that you, you know, you bring in a lot of other stuff is uh, context and comparisons uh, for the album, uh, other albums, movies, stuff going on in your personal life, politics. <laughs> uh, it's great, Steve. It's really oh. like it's such an easy, pleasurable read. Uh, it's never never feels like homework, like some music biographies or history books. And uh, you know, I, I spend the whole time reading the book and just thinking. How lucky am I that I get to talk to this guy about music? Oh my god! Week. Oh my god! What <laughs> I know this is this is cheesy and corny, but it's true. This I really is... like. I, I love the book. I love talking to you, Steve. Everybody should go out and buy. This isn't happening. It's in stores now. I'm bringing some like, you know, sunshine and light to the very bleak world of Radiohead oh, in 2020. I'm uh, telling you, and that I'm gonna uh, and that that'll be the uh, we can square that off as my. My book review corner. <laughs> this is like this is like when the dead open up with morning dew, man. This is just the powerful <laughs> emotional catharsis. I don't know if I can continue. That that's such a sweet thing, Rob. Man, I love you. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. <laughs> and you're probably all wondering, okay, that's all great. The book might be good, but like, why are you talking about it on my Grateful Dead podcast? Like, what? How are you going to link this to this band that we normally hear about on this show? You know, look, I think we our first Kerbal episode, I think it was a more obvious connection when we talked about Fish. You know, Fish is a jam band. They are, I think, considered to be like the next link in the chain of like great American jam groups. And Radiohead is not a jam band. And I think if they were called a jam band, which they have been called a jam band <laughs> right. by some people. Pejoratively. Pejoratively, yeah. we're going to talk about that here uh soon but you know they would not welcome that designation um you know i think tom york again would be he might vomit if he if he were called a jam band or, or described in that way um however i do think that there are some interesting parallels that we can draw between the dead and radiohead and yeah. while they aren't a jam band in the sense of going on stage and playing dark star for 20 minutes you know where they're improvising music in the moment uh in the way that we know and love with the grateful dead there are elements of them being a jam band in the studio and this is something i write about in the book during the creation of kid a and amnesiac of course those were the same sessions that took place in uh 1999 and 2000 they were um they were jamming in the studio in order to create songs essentially there's a song on amnesiac called dollars and cents that we're going to talk about later in this episode which came out of a jam session i believe that song was originally like 12 minutes long and they cut it in half to make the song that ends up on the record 
There's another very famous song from Kid A called Idiotique, which isn't necessarily like it didn't wasn't necessarily a jam. It was like this sort of, I guess, electronic composition or doodle, if you will, that Johnny Greenwood made. That was very long, and Tom York was able to take music out of there and turn it into the track. Um, but the inspiration that Radiohead was drawing from, it wasn't the dead, it was the German band Can, right. uh, it, which is how they would write songs, uh, jamming in the studio and shaping them into compositions uh, in, in the studio. I think like Miles Davis too, like there's a lot of Miles Davis records like that where his producer mm-hmm. uh, is a Ted Masiro would do that. Uh, yeah. 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 Like in a silent way is like that, right. It's heavily edited and yeah, I think, brew and all those. Yeah. I think like all those fusion records are, are basically put together that way. It's actually making me think like, it's strange to me that the dead never made records like that. Unless I'm well, wrong. Cause did they like, it was Oxo Moxo like that. Like the early. That's records? A, yeah. So Anthem of the sun and Oxo Moxo are the two that they, that was when the dead were really experimental in the studio. Right. So they, spent a lot of time and money <laughs> recording things in the studio and then tried to do sort of a collage effect. Uh, sometimes doing collaging studio with live material, like uh, both of those I think include some live recordings mixed in with the studio performances. Uh, so that's, I think, the closest The Dead got to sort of studio as an instrument um, recording style. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, yeah, can is definitely much more the lodestone here and can is, I mean, you could probably call can like the German grateful dead in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, if we were to do a curveball op- episode on can, that would be <laughs> a real alienator for a, a lot of listeners out there. But can is a band that I think, you know, uh, s- share some of the ethos of the grateful dead. They just did it in a much more German uh, way well, so they're think, a little like, dar- darker and nastier. I think though, like if a lot of deadheads like who they may not know who Can is, but if they heard Can, they would dig it. I mean, I think they would. Yeah, absolutely. It's just they're yeah, they're that's not the famous. Thing, I, not not a lot of people have heard of that. I think and yeah, Krautrock isn't exactly uh, you know lumped in with the the hippie scene very often. But uh, going back to the Miles Davis uh, reference that I made earlier, I mean, I think. If we're going to look for common touchstones between Radiohead and the Grateful Dead, I think Miles Davis is, it's an overlap for those two, mm-hmm. especially as we get into the Kid A era where uh, I think Radiohead, again, they weren't a jam band at this time, but they were entering this period where they weren't as, say, song-centric as they were on their early records. And for those who maybe don't know Radiohead all that well, their first record, Pablo Honey, comes out in 93. Then you have The Benz in 1995. And then OK Computer, 1997, a very big record. I think in a way, 1997, the, the OK Computer is them starting to move beyond this sort of like tradition of like British rock songwriting. You know, I think if you listen to a record like The Benz, for instance, it's essentially like the Smiths meet the Pixies, you know, where it's this British type songwriting colliding with American indie rock, which I think was in the DNA of Radiohead early on. And then on OK Computer, you have a song like Paranoid Android, which, again, if you're going to make a Grateful Dead comparison, that's sort of like their Terrapin Station. You know, it's a multi-part epic that is written in the studio. But again, it's not jammy. It's basically like prog rock, really. Yeah. 
Um, but then when you get into the Kid A era, that's when you start to hear uh, Radiohead again, inspired by Miles Davis and and Can and other people. Brian Eno being a big influence too. Um, more about sort of the sound of the band and exploring different sonic textures, mm-hmm. which in a way I guess is like the reverse of the Grateful Dead trajectory, where they made their experimental records later, and like you said. They spent a lot of time in the studio, spent a lot of money, and I think they realized that we don't really like how these records turned out, and we spent so much time and money on them, so we're going to go into the studio with songs worked up so we can just go in and out very quickly, and that's Working Man's Dead, basically. And even as you get later into the 70s, they essentially stay with that formula, don't they? I mean, because, again, like even when they have longer songs... They're not jammy songs. They're just like multi-part epics, essentially. But right. they're but they're they're composed. I would say like part of my dead to Radiohead like conversion calculator <laughs> is uh, that you could maybe describe like Mars Hotel Blues for Allah as being their Kid A amnesiac, where ah. they had kind of gotten back to. Uh, using the studio as an instrument, focusing on texture. I think a lot of blues for Allah in particular, uh, while they were on hiatus from the road, they would go to Bob's ranch and just jam. And I think a lot of those songs came out of those jams to some extent. Uh, so that is maybe uh, the sort of later dead version of this. Let's just improvise in the studio and then see what we come up with and paste it together. Uh, after the fact so that that would be my argument i mean it's not a perfect one-to-one i mean as we've already you know said multiple times i don't think there's any point that the dead and radiohead the dead in the head uh (laughs) that they ever uh sound alike like you know during the fish episode we went through the show and kind of said oh yeah this song's kind of like their morning dew or this song is kind of like their dark star there there's not a real good clean comparison in this entire radiohead show uh where you can say oh yeah this is radiohead's dark star so to speak um but i do think that they share uh like similar career paths just you know offset by like 30 years right so yeah the the dead are coming out of you know sort of the early days of rock and roll and i guess album rock right so not you know, early Chuck Berry rock and roll, but the, you know, sort of class early days of the classic rock period as we think of it. And they're taking a lot of their roots, which are blues and country and early days of rock and roll, uh, and deconstructing it and adapting it to, for what the time was sort of modern sensibilities going into the seventies, uh, and expanding on what, you know, that sort of genre could sound like uh radiohead is i think doing the same thing just you're bumping them forward you know 25 30 years where they're taking sort of the 80s of british alter uh, of british and alternative rock and college rock in the early 90s and they're starting out in the middle of the grunge era just like the dead were starting out in the middle of like sort of mid 60s garage rock era uh, but then they, you know, traveled a long ways away from that <laughs> over their career. Uh, and they were, you know, sort of pioneers in how can we push the limits of this foundational music that we started on and, you know, combine all the other things that are going on in music at the time into our sound and come up with, with something new and fresh and, 
you know, unlike any other band on the planet. And that's where I really think there's a nice parallel between the Grateful Dead and Radiohead is that they are bands that found a singular sound that people have tried to emulate and people have had some commercial success emulating, I would say, uh, but have never quite gotten at what is, you know, totally unique and special about that band. Uh, And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about here is how Radiohead have kind of, you know, done the same thing that the dead did and forged their own path, like both artistically and through the music industry. Yeah. Uh, It's just that they did it, you know, uh, a generation later. Yeah. I mean, to me, and I love that comparison that you just made there. I, I think that, you know, the obvious ways that Radiohead and Grateful Dead diverge is one, there's nothing remotely bluesy about Radiohead, <laughs> and, no. and they yeah. really don't have any connection to country music, which you wouldn't expect because they're a British band. You know, they're not right. an American band, and there's obviously a big tradition of British people playing blues music, but country music it's utterly disconnected. And really, like by the time Radiohead came along, I think British blues, like for their generation of musicians, was looked at as being old hat, even corny. You know, like you weren't going to be like a a British blues band in the late '80s or early '90s. It you know just was not really in the cards. I guess unless you're like the Stone Roses, like on their second record. I guess they kind of yeah. got bluesy at that point. But um, I think the other thing too is that there's no real sort of like party hardy side to Radiohead, which <laughs> might be like what other than them not improvising on stage. It also I think really. Uh, separates them from like the jam scene and maybe yeah. what for people listening to this episode who might be Radiohead skeptics I have, I imagine that that might be a kind of like a big stumbling block the idea that like Radiohead doesn't seem maybe as like fun as the dead are you know where right. the dead obviously have a very serious side to them they make very esoteric experimental music but then in the next track they can go into <laughs> the opposite realm playing good loving yeah yeah they could play good loving and then they can go into like a (laughs) you know again like a half hour dark star that is blowing your mind and then they go back and they play uh you know not fade away you know and that's the beauty of the grateful dead and it's also you know to bring up another curveball band like fish like fish has Mm -hmm. that same thing and in a way i was kind of thinking like maybe the grateful dead is in the middle between radiohead and fish because i think fish is goofier obviously than the grateful dead whereas radiohead is more serious than the grateful dead Mm -hmm. it's like radiohead has the esoteric experimental side that we love of the grateful dead but they don't have the party side and fish has i think maybe more of a party side than the grateful dead and the grateful dead are almost like the one in the middle that gets both both. Yeah. yeah um i just this just occurred to me as we were talking i'm 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 I am literally talking out of my ass right now. Not literally. I guess I'm figuratively talking out of my ass. My, my ass is not up to the microphone right now. But I mean, to me, does that make sense? I think that kind of makes sense as, as like a spectrum that absolutely that, that would be in the middle between Radiohead and Fish. And then, and we'll get into this more over the course of the episode. But that's that's really the tension that I find so fascinating about this particular show that we chose is that it's Radiohead headlining the big jam band festival of the 2000s and just Radiohead in general playing the large festival crowds is such like an incongruous experience to me because they are such a cerebral and serious and bleak band. 
sort of drop them into this festival setting where you would expect, you know, sort of lowest common denominator, crowd-pleasing music to, to play. Uh, you know, big anthems, big optimistic anthems or big danceable, you know, jammy music. Uh, Radiohead doesn't do either of those. Um, and it's just like such an interesting dynamic to watch that play out and succeed Yeah, uh, I mean, in, th- in an environment with, you know, 100,000 people in a field. Yeah, they killed it at Bonnaroo. And again, like, I mean, this is considered one of the great Radiohead shows of all time, not just by fans, but by the band members themselves. Like, they've talked mm-hmm. about how this was such a great show. And I think, you know, as we get into the episode, we'll see. I think that has something to do with, like, the time in their history when they played this show. I think they really needed something like Bonnaroo uh, at this time because, you know, this show came in the midst of not a very happy period, really, for Radiohead. And it, it seems like this uplifted them uh Mm -hmm. during that that kind of difficult time but you know getting back to the the jam bam uh sort of comparisons with radiohead you know i wrote about this in my book there was an article in spin magazine from 2009 where it was one of those articles like where the thesis of the of of the piece is that everyone says that this thing is great and we're going to tell you why it's not great you know, like which is a gambit that music critics use all the time. And it's a they, very 2009 uh, attitude. Yeah, and um, the idea of this piece was that like Radiohead's overrated and they're not as good as music critics say they are. And one of the insults that the writer uses towards Radiohead is to call them a jam band, right? And I think the basis of that that the writer uses is that Radiohead, you know, used to write songs and now they write these sort of meandering mood pieces uh, Mm -hmm. that aren't, again, sort of about the hook of the song or about a great chorus. It's about the interplay of the band and, and the spaciousness of the music. Uh, Even though it's, they're not really jamming again. I I don't think again, Radiohead really jams on stage. There might be moments that are different from show to show, but they're not really jamming in the way that we talk about jamming. I don't think, but to me again, that's just like an example of like using jam band, as an insult and not really bothering to explain like why that's bad. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's just, just sort of, it's like taken it, as a given that if you're a jam band, it's bad. It's like a, it's a weapon, right? It's just a blunt weapon to toss in there. Yeah. Um, it's like calling I someone think, an idiot or something. Like you don't have to explain yeah. why it's bad to be an idiot. You know, you're just an idiot. But yeah, it's like, well, yeah. Why is it bad to be a jam band though? Like you're just, right. you're just saying that as if we should just know why that's bad. Well, it's funny because uh, I don't have the full quote in front of me from the article, but you quoted in the book and you talk about how like the entire quote uh, is meant to be uh, a diss of Radiohead, but it all sounds pretty great, right. <laughs> honestly. Like, and, uh, you know, of course, we're more sympathetic to the jam band part of that quote than other music writers might be, but it like is a pretty like excellent summation of what the Radiohead experience is like <laughs> by 2009 and it's sort of it's a it's a you know a Rorschach test for whether uh you would be into that or not I mean I do think there's a couple like jam band signifiers that Radiohead grew into potentially as a live band and one is that they are you know as weird as they would get or as you know anti-song as they would get they got more and more into having I think a pretty robust muscular groove uh, to a lot of their songs and part of that is 
the influence of electronic music. Uh, but part of it is just that like Colin Greenwood and Phil Selway are a, a pretty amazing rhythm section. I mean, they're, they're, they get talked about the least of Radiohead. We didn't even give them uh, Grateful Dead counterparts <laughs> in our introduction section. And I don't even know what they would be other than saying, oh, Phil is Billy, something boring like that. Uh, but like they are, you know, pretty amazing at what they do. And I think that's part of what sells Radiohead for a festival crowd like this. And part of what also maybe gravitates them more towards like a jam band sound is that I think a lot of Radiohead songs are pretty danceable and that's down to them, right? That's definitely down, not down to what Johnny and Tom and even Ed are contributing to the music. So well, there's and also, that. Oh, well, I, was, I was just going to say quick, speaking of the rhythm section, like as a live band, they've actually added a second drummer in the 2010s, right. which of course is extremely jam band. I think that is maybe the most jam th- band thing about them having two <laughs> yeah. drummers, uh, not in the studio so much because they can, you know, do things in the studio to replicate uh, the sound of multiple drummers. But yeah, live, they've, they've, they've added that. And it speaks to the point you just made. I think it really has added to the groove of their live shows. And you could hear it on the bootlegs of like mm-hmm. the King of Limbs tour and, and, and beyond. Right. Yeah, there's two Bonnaroo shows, actually. And if you listen to the other one in 2012, you can... You can see what having a like cloned version of Phil Selway <laughs> adds to the band. It's actually the drummer from Portishead, right? It's yeah. like a yeah. So it's like a but he's also it's bald. an actual yeah known dude. But I mean, they it looks like they just you know in the in the spirit of Kid A being about the first clone or whatever that story, <laughs> right. backstory is, they just decided to clone Phil and make a a second Phil, uh, Phil Selway, not Phil Ash sadly um but yeah so there's the two drummer thing there's this like intense groove section and then you know i think a lot of what they're doing with sonic textures isn't that far off from what a lot of jam bands were doing even back to the dead like the 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 closest musical comparison i can make between the dead and radio ad is that as sort of the drum space section got more heavily electronic in terms of the use like you know mickey started using some samples and some you know uh you know uh, drum beats drum loops as part of the drum section and then the space section being you know more and more heavily midi focused and experience experimenting with a lot of technology of the time which sounds really dated now uh so radiohead has the advantage of like synthesizers and midi technology and samplers and all these things sounded a lot better even in 2000 than they did in 1995 when the dead went away. Uh, But there, you can see sort of a similar sensibility, I think there where the grateful dead were like, you know, Jerry's like, what if my guitar sounded like a trumpet (laughs) or things like that? (laughs) Or what if we have Bob Raylove on the side of the stage, like, you know, changing the tones of our guitars and our keyboards while we're improvising, what would that sound like? And that's, I think where you, some of the like Radiohead music, I think comes out of a similar sort of experimental and, you know, almost playful in a way, uh, way of interacting with technology and instruments, you know, using instruments that are not normal rock instruments and using instruments that uh, you can kind of change the tone of what they should normally sound like in unexpected ways and, and making, you know, art and songs and music out of that. Yeah, it, I think that's a great point. I mean, and that's something that I think sometimes gets overlooked a little bit with the Grateful Dead because we, you know, they're often associated with being this uh, 
in a way traditionalist band like the, the music that they're drawing from is just bedrock american music and they're obviously associated with the with the 60s and 70s so i think they're often classified as this almost backward looking band but the reality is is that throughout their career they were a band that embraced technology and were very much looking toward the future uh, whether it be like their huge ass sound system, all the instrumental tones that you were talking about, the way that the Grateful Dead were, I think, like really the first band to really utilize the internet. And I guess that would be also down to their fans, their fans being online, using that mm-hmm. as a way to trade tapes. And uh, the Radiohead analogy to that is that in, I think, Radiohead space, they were among the first bands of sort of like their ilk to really have a strong fan presence online you know fans were starting uh fan sites you know in the mid to late 90s um and by the time of kid a kid a was the was what was among the first like new kind of big event albums that was streamed online Mm -hmm. um and the way that they did it was they essentially allowed anyone to stream it you know they had this embeddable player that anyone could could take and put it on their blog so it wasn't like an exclusive to NPR or something. It was something like right. if you had a blog, you could do it. So it was this sort of democratized uh, system that they had to share their music, uh, which is obviously a very Grateful Dead thing to do. Radiohead, too. I mean, they're, they're also wandering into this area now where they're making their back archives more available to people. Yeah. Like they have this website now where you can go on, you can watch videos of like past concerts. Uh, I mean, there's so much stuff on there. I mean, in a way, it's like I'm still figuring out what's on there because it's not terribly well organized. In a way, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of like that Neil Young archive too, like where there's so much cool stuff there, but it can be hard to find it. Yeah, um, it's and this is only about a year ago, right? That they just they yeah. just sort of dumped this all. So this is like well, not even we, a year ago. It's like I, I swear I turned in my manuscript. And like <laughs> maybe like a, a month later, they announced this. Like, right, just would, to spite you. Yeah. It would have been it would have been so great to have access to that as I was writing yeah. the book. And yeah, it's, but yeah, it wasn't available when I was writing it. Uh, but it's available now, and I think they're still adding stuff to it too all the time. Yeah, but it's it's, it's a pretty clunky. cool site. Yeah, it's just radiohead.com slash library if you want to check it out. And I find it kind of interesting because you know we've talked a lot about the Dick's Pick series and how it was so revolutionary for the time for a band to open up the vaults uh, like they did. Uh, But they, you know, they teased it out over, you know, several, you know, many, many years, like just a show at a time every three to six months. Uh, And it was a very, you know, curated selection of shows, obviously through the taste of Dick Latvala and his collaborators on releasing the series. Uh, So it, it, they were able to kind of craft a narrative or tell the story by, you know, putting these shows out when they did and jumping between eras and things like that, filling in gaps in people's knowledge or finding tapes that people didn't already have. Uh, but Radiohead, I think in a very, you know, 2019, 2020 way, uh, are, 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 are kind of leaving that up to everybody to consume, right? They just kind of dumped all this stuff at once. I mean, it was literally like, one day there was no official Radiohead videos or uh, live uh, videos online. Uh, and then the next day they had like 50 shows that you could watch <laughs> from every era of Radiohead. Plus their music videos. Plus you could like 
look at their merch from each album era. Like you can look at, you know, weird album art and internet experiences, uh, experiments they were doing. You could look at like demos and B-sides. Like it is just like the fire hose of the Radiohead archive. And I remember like the, the week it came out on the Radiohead Twitter, every day one member of the band picked something uh, specific from this library to feature and i think one of them it might have been ed i think it was ed picked this bonnaroo 2006 show um but other than that that first week where they all kind of picked hey check out this show or check out this thing that we put up from the library they haven't given people any sort of map (laughs) to go through it and figure out like what are the highlights of radiohead's past and so i'm kind of curious what you think about like which which method is best like the the fire hose or the sort of uh curated museum exhibit that is dick's picks and all of its successors and the grateful dead well you uh, know I, I, i mean i think that they're both um i mean ideally you want both you want the ability to just access whatever you want just the way you do as a deadhead you can go and re-listen and you can listen to pretty much every show and you can take your own path if you want but on the other hand it is it is nice to have someone like a dick latvala or a david lemieux who's gonna like put out these great sounding records with cool artwork and it's an expert picking a show for you like i think they're both great and like radiohead um there is no dick right now for for radiohead i mean Mm -hmm. there's no officially sanctioned person like that who's gonna dig in their history and like find cool shows for you to to listen to it's it's really like self-appointed people who are doing that right now like there was a guy that i spoke with as i was writing my book he was an advisor for me his name is jeff blair who has a website where he uh posts uh bootlegs from like every album cycle and he picked about, I think, five or six shows for every album cycle. And he wrote, like, little liner notes for each show explaining, like, why he picked it. And that was very helpful for me as I was writing my book because I ended up writing quite a bit about Radiohead bootlegs because I wanted to write about the, the tours that they played, and especially around the time of the Kid A and Amnesiac album releases, um, writing about how the songs evolved when they played them live because they essentially became more like rock songs once they were brought to the stage um and uh so so maybe jeff is going to be the dick you know i don't know like he was very helpful for me and i really liked having him there and i'll say too i'm a little leery about talking about his site i don't know if it's (laughs) illegal what he's doing but i will say (laughs) if you google radiohead bootlegs you will find his site pretty easily and it's been up for a while so i'm inclined to think that they know about it and just haven't done anything but there's mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's probably you know in the neighborhood of like almost 50 shows on there and um and i know jeff has many more than that because there were certain shows that i wanted to listen to that weren't on his blog that uh that he had in his private collection and i feel like he has like every radiohead show or like close yeah. to every radiohead show so again well, that speaks that speaks to like how radiohead fans the most obsessive ones are like deadheads you know, they are just as obsessive about it. And yeah, they're going to want to go on a Radiohead site to look at old merch or, you know, old concert videos and all that stuff. Um, even if, again, they're not necessarily inventing new music in every show, I think for the obsessive fans, there are these moments of serendipity in every tape that make them want to collect them and, and go back to it. Right. And you talk about in the book that there was a pretty robust scene of Radiohead fan sites 
from the early days of the internet, right? That uh, yeah. I mean, Radiohead's another band that you know, like Fish, in the late '90s. I remember waking up every morning and checking Andy Goodell's uh, Fish page for uh, what what the set list was the previous night, or checking like the Rec Music Fish news group. And Radiohead is a few years removed from that, but I re- also remember in you know. 2000, 2001, when they were touring Kid A or in the lead up to Kid A in 2000, even when the album wasn't even out yet, uh, you know, checking out set lists online. And, you know, Radiohead is a band that does change up the set list quite a bit, too, which is another jam bandy thing where yeah. they don't they don't play like a structured. I mean, I guess it's structured, but they don't play just the same set night in and night out. They have some fluidity to what songs they pick. So uh, there's that similar sort of. Uh, you know, like checking the box score sort of experience <laughs> that you get uh, with jam bands for Radiohead, where you want to like follow how a tour unfolds uh, and, you know, stats about what songs they play and what songs they haven't played in many, many years and what are the big bust outs and things like that. about you, but I've probably worn shorts more in 2020 than any other year of my life. Sitting on all those video calls, you only have to be business dress code from the shoulders up, and you can be all casual below. If you want to use that work-from-home freedom to represent your favorite band, Section 119 has the high-quality Grateful Dead gear you need. Check out their board shorts, designed around steelies, lightning bolts, terrapin turtles, or the Skull and Roses skeleton. Or maybe you'd like their shirts and polos, which have subtle designs for that professional deadhead look on a Zoom meeting. And there's much more. Blazers, wallets, socks. I recently bought some bandanas on Section 119 myself to keep my quarantine hair in check. And they've been great. Really well made, washable, with a design that draws compliments from jam fans and normal people alike. So swing by Section119.com. That's Section119.com. Enter the code 36 from the vaults upon checkout and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's section119.com. So let's set up the show here. And I feel like another crucial aspect of like us picking this show specifically, you know, we've, we've been talking about the connections that Radiohead have to the jam band scene. We're making some comparisons to the Grateful Dead. Then playing Bonnaroo is I think another wrinkle here because Bonnaroo of course has become in the last 20 years the festival that feels the most connected to like a jam scene even though it's like evolved pretty dramatically since it started in 2002 and increasingly it it doesn't feel all that different from Coachella but in the early days I mean it was something that I think you could look at and say like okay this is 
probably connected to like the festivals that fish were doing in the 90s which to me feel spiritually influenced if not directly influenced by the dead playing things like english town which we just <laughs> talked about in our dicks picks 15 episode or or watkins Glen in 1973 or obviously something like woodstock would be like i guess the grand daddy of all those um but yeah it's interesting that radiohead was in that context because like in 2006 i feel like bonnaroo was still like pretty jammy at that time i mean bonnaroo was very directly inspired by Fish's festivals in the 90s and people at Superfly Presents uh, deciding we're going to throw a big festival like the Fish Festival, but we're going to do it in the middle of Tennessee. And instead of just having one band, we're going to have 200 bands. Uh, But from the point of its founding until 2006, it was pretty jam heavy. Like every year the headliners were you know almond brothers or grateful dead offshoots or you know dave matthews band or string cheese incident or all the all the like you know upper tier bands of the jam band scene uh what's interesting about radiohead in 2006 uh they were the friday night headliner so they were one of the headliners of the festival that's really the first year where it started to broaden outside of the jam scene and start to bring in other types of bands and like they so that year um radiohead was really the top band like you know if you look at festival font size and order like i like to do like they were the top top draw at bonnaroo that year and the other headliners were more sort of in line with bonnaroo it was tom petty phil and friends was one of the headliners elvis costello was another headliner which i'm sure radiohead loved since they're big elvis costello fans as you talk a lot about in the book uh but you know subsequent years of bonnaroo got more and more i would say indie uh and sort of mixed indie with the jam scene which i really loved the one year of bonnaroo i went to was 2009 which was two nights of fish uh, with Bruce Springsteen in between, <laughs> so not really indie, but the 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 lineup from you know below the headliners was full of indie rock bands, and I loved it. Um, and it really felt like uh, sort of the crowning achievement of indie jam in 2009 was that Bonnaroo Festival because it was all these you know Animal Collective rubbing shoulders with like Mo, <laughs> like that was like kind of. Uh, uh, a, a unique time in, in Bonnaroo history. But yeah, you're right. It's it's become like the 2020 Bonnaroo was going to be just incredibly generic. Like it was Tool and Lizzo and Tame Impala were the headliners. So Bonnaroo has kind of become just like every other festival. But back in 2006, it was, I think, a, a pretty significant step forward that they would book a band like Radiohead uh, instead of just, you know, having the Allman Brothers come play for the fifth time. Yeah, and I think for Radiohead, too, they did step up to this festival knowing the types of bands that normally played there. And again, they didn't come out and jam at this show, but they played like a pretty expansive set list. I think it's about 28 songs that they end up playing. And I think what is most crucial about this show, and I think a big reason why it's so beloved among Radiohead fans is that they played so many songs from In Rainbows about a year before that record came out. Uh, so like a good part of their set list were songs that people hadn't heard. I guess there were probably people that heard some of this material from other shows that Radiohead played. If you were, if you were a bootleg collector, mm-hmm. you, you'd heard those songs. Um, but Bonnaroo, I feel like, was the show that 
when people were waiting for In Rainbows to come out, like they were referring to the versions of those songs from this show. And there's mm-hmm. even, I, there's one example in particular that we'll get to when we get to the show that I think is still considered like the definitive version of uh, that song, like the performance from the Bonnaroo concert. Uh, which, you know, again, if you want to make a connection to the Grateful Dead, I think that's something else that we could connect them to that um, Radiohead frequently played songs before the, they were released on record. Um, and really, like in the case of, of, of this show, you know, Radiohead was in the process of making In Rainbows, um, which was a very long and torturous process. It ended up being about two years, which when you listen to that record might be kind of a shock because the record just sounds like they plugged in and played. It has a very organic, naturalistic sound to it, but it was actually very difficult for Radiohead to get to the point where they felt comfortable presenting themselves that way. Like one of the things mm-hmm. I really found interesting about writing this book was realizing that Radiohead, while they are among the most acclaimed bands of their generation, they're also extremely insecure about themselves. <laughs> and they would often, at the beginning of their album process, run away from who they were. Mm-hmm. And not like the way that they played songs live because they were trying to reinvent themselves often on their records and they felt that if they just sounded like a rock band in the studio, that it wouldn't be good enough. But I think playing this show in particular was important for them because one, it made them realize that the songs that they were writing were really good for in rainbows. And two, it just, I think reaffirmed this idea that like they're a great live band and they sound really good playing together. And, um, we'll get into this in the show. Like the versions of the in rainbow songs that they play in this concert, they're not all that far removed from the record. I mean, they had these songs, I think, down. But even after playing this show, it was like over a year before <laughs> In Rainbows came out. I think In Rainbows came out in the fall of 07, and this show was in the summer of 06. Um, so yeah, it, this show was a big uplift, but it still didn't totally kind of kill the confusion, I think, that they were feeling in the studio at that time. So that's a fascinating thing to, uh, to explore as we get into the show. But, um, yeah, I mean, again, I think them just playing Bonnaroo, it was big for Bonnaroo, but it was also big for Radiohead too. Right. I mean, it fascinates me that this is, you know, what the band talks about as potentially their greatest concert ever. Right. I mean, it's like, it's a good show, but it's like so interesting that in this, you know, sort of out of their comfort zone. I mean, you can hear when you listen to the show that a lot of people were there and and super psyched to see Radiohead. This is not like a hostile audience for Radiohead by any means. Like by 2006, Radiohead had uh, bled over, you know, all genre boundaries. And, you know, I, I feel like jam band people were always pretty, uh, you know, amenable to Radiohead. Like I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember hearing Radiohead in the lot at uh, fish shows in the late 90s. Like, OK, Computer would, you know, naturally be something that I think fish fans would gravitate towards just because it hits sort of, you know, Pink Floyd classic rock buttons that a fish fan would gravitate towards. But yeah, I mean, they're like effusive in their praise looking back at this show. Like Tom York literally said, this is the best ever gig for me. It was a real buzz biggest buzz i've ever had for years actually to be honest like that is like coming from tom york that is effusive praise right like yeah yeah i almost wonder like to what degree they just appreciated playing for an audience that is so focused on music 
because mm-hmm. I think that is a unifying thing with jam band crowds. You know, there's the stereotype of like jam band crowds just being like, you know, drugged out and mm-hmm. and dancing around. But in my experience, no audience pays attention more closely than a jam audience. And I could just see Radiohead noticing that and appreciating that intensity of focus. Um, because you're right, this is a very adoring crowd. It's not necessarily a crowd that would have been there just for Radiohead. I mean, I'm sure there are people there who love them, but they were also probably people that went to Bonnaroo all the time. And for them to get so excited, again, about a lot of songs that Radiohead hadn't played really before, Mm -hmm. um, I think must have just been incredible for them. And, you know, that's not even something that they could have expected at a typical Radiohead concert, necessarily. (laughs) So, like, in a way, I think, again, I think that has a lot to do with how they feel about this show, I suspect, that (laughs) there was all this material that they hadn't played before. Um and was still a long way from coming out. I mean, you wrote something funny in our outline. You're like, is this like their Cornell? <laughs> yeah. Or is it their Vanita? Um, and I think it is their Cornell uh, in the sense of it being like a popular touchstone that everyone likes and being a very digestible show. I think the the Vanita is another show that they played in Berlin in 2000. July 4th, which I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on that because, but I'll just say, look that show up, July 4th, 2000 in Berlin. It's incredible. And that's like a, per, that's a pre-Kid A show, right? It's a pre-Kid so that's A show. Sort of mystique, yeah. And they're playing mostly Kid A and Amnesiac songs. I think it's about half the set list is new songs. Um, and it's incredible. The, and the versions of that are incredible. Um, but man, I'm excited to get to this Radiohead show, but before we get to it, I think we have to set the scene of what else was going on in pop culture at the time. And I love these uh, curveball episodes for this because it's, uh, it's so different from the Grateful Dead uh, charts. Yeah, very, very different. So we're going to June 2006. The number one song in America, Hips Don't Lie by Shakira <laughs> and Wyclef Sean. Um, yeah, there you go. I don't know. I... Um, I feel like that was the peak of Shakira right there. I, did she have an, an, any other hits? I guess maybe she did. I, I cannot name another Shakira song other than Hips Don't Lie. No, I think that's her. That's probably her biggest. But yeah, she's had a lot of hits. That like This must be around the time that... Didn't she play the Super Bowl like multiple times? <laughs> like yeah. she played it last year. But yeah, this, this seems very much like a Shakira conquering the world type of year. Yeah, she's been uh, eating on that song for like 15 years, man. <laughs> right. Good for her. Um, number one album in the country, Dixie Chicks, Taking the Long Way, their comeback record. Um, it, and It's uh, funny that like I know... Like we'll 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 talk about a dead seventy three show and I'll know every album in the top ten and then two thousand six <laughs> you know when I was in my twenties I'm like all right a Dixie Chicks album I have no idea what which one that was is that is that when they were like anti George W Bush or well that was that... the Rick Rubin record where because yeah, oh. they, they had this like you know they had the Dixie they had the the George W Bush thing happened in oh uh, three. Okay. And then there was like a three-year gap where they were weathering the storm, and then they came back as not really a country band anymore. They're basically like a rock band at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Taken a Long Way was was their return. I have to say, too, like in my book, I end up writing a lot about the aughts. And I have to say that if you think now is screwed up, you forgot about how screwed up the aughts were. The aughts were <laughs> a dark period 
the Dixie Chicks being, you know, ostracized are is an outgrowth of that. You know, it was a period of just like, you know, you had the Bush v. Gore election. You had 9-11, obviously. You had two wars going on. Uh, 06, I believe, that was right around the time of Katrina. Wasn't, was Katrina, was Katrina, I think, was 05, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you've got like the, the real estate collapse coming like the following year from this and the you know the the global economy almost melting down uh right around this time so yeah the aughts were terrible um <laughs> and radiohead you know they were the uh they were the perfect soundtrack for that time Just right well i would that- say the album charts reflect the terribleness of the uh of the time because you got what high school musical which unfortunately has been big in my house, <laughs> thanks to Disney Plus. Uh, the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers album Stadium Arcadium, which I remember writing uh, a teardown review for Pitchfork that I still get hate mail about. Weirdly, I think you know Chili Peppers are still ch- the Chili Pepper heads are still mad about whatever I gave that random chili pepper album in 2006 Sh- that's like their double record i think for is still in the band at that time i've heard i've heard people defend stadium arcadium like music critics who mm. who know that i have a weakness for uh garbage aughts era rock <laughs> uh you know like i've been on i've been listening to kings of leon again recently because i've got a yeah. weakness for you know just just dumb rock bands it's like it's like my the musical version of Doritos, essentially. Um, so yeah, I've got like devils in my ear whispering to tell me to listen to Stadium Arcadium. Uh, All right, next next curveball episode. Oh man, we, we, the, chi- no. the, the chili Are... peps. <laughs> <laughs> so the number one film in America uh, the week of the show was Cars, which <laughs> right. I've seen a million times now. That since I have kids. Yes. Yeah. Same here. All the it's Cars big, films. A big hit. With both of the both of the sons, so yeah, I mean, what? So what is it? What is the film nerd pick for <laughs> June two thousand six? Is it well, I guess Prairie Home like, Companion? I guess Altman's last movie. Yeah, even though I don't really like that movie, um, but yeah, that would be it. I guess that, I mean, that movie's like like, pretty well regarded, but I don't know. I don't really like that, Prairie Home Companion. I live in Minnesota. I, that right. might be sacrilege, even though Garrison Keillor is like disgraced. He's been canceled now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I hated it before he was canceled. I canceled him in my mind before he yeah. was canceled. I mean, I guess the Radiohead link there is that, like, uh, I love this, like, trivia about that movie is that Paul Thomas Anderson was on set the whole time in case Altman died while they made that movie. Right. Did you know this? Yeah. yeah. So he was, like, he was like the insurance backup director in case Altman kicked it. And he died maybe after they made it and before it came out. I don't know. It was shortly thereafter. But, uh yeah, so, and of course, Johnny Greenwood has done, uh, what is it, like the last four or five scores for Paul Thomas Anderson? Yeah. So yep, we're almost and... turning into a Paul Thomas Anderson uh, podcast, given the last couple weeks, but uh, maybe oh, that man. maybe that's the sequel to 36 from the Vault. Is That'd be great. Paul Love Thomas PTA. Anderson movies. Yeah, he's my favorite, so, yeah. Number one TV show is the NBA Finals. <laughs> right. The, the Mavs versus the Heat. In oh, 2006, yeah. I have no memory at all of that particular NBA Finals. That was, um, um, I think, uh, I think the Mavs won that one. I think it was the Heat. I don't know. Heat? I looked this up and then I forgot. Oh wait, <laughs> so no, that's no, that's right. No, it was the Heat because I think the Mavs were were favored. Like the Mavs were really good that year, and uh, um, I think that was Dwayne Wade's 
right. uh, first title and like Shaq. Rise of Stardom. Yeah. Like Shaq had just joined the Heat. Uh, I do remember year. when I was at uh, Bonnaroo in 2009, they have like a movie tent and they did show the NBA finals uh, that year inside the movie tent. So it's something that always goes together is NBA finals and Bonnaroo. <laughs> All right. So now let's get to the show. We're here. We're in Bonnaroo. We're standing in like, it's like a thousand degrees. Uh, yeah. Have, did you ever go to Bonnaroo? And we no, didn't bring this up. I haven't been to Bonnaroo. I, okay. uh, no, I haven't been down there. And like, I feel like I missed my window. For yeah. when I would have wanted to go, um, I mean, I don't really love music festivals anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the year you went, that would have been a great time to go. That was the uh, best year, I think. Like uh, fish, like fish and Springsteen. That's like my worlds colliding right there. Yeah, it was the final Beastie Boys show. It's also what it's like known for, and yeah, there were. Many, many, many other bands that we love were at that one. But, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, like, well-run festival. And I like that it's in the middle of nowhere because I've been to a lot of Lollapaloozas. I think you've been to a lot of Lollapaloozas, too, in Chicago. Yeah, it's awful. And uh, it's, like, you know, in the middle of the city, so you don't really have that, like, festival bubble feeling of being just out detached from the rest of the world and seeing music. Like, Bonnaroo has that where... There's nothing for miles around, and you're just going to stages all day for four days and getting sunburnt and drunk and, you know, enjoying some music. So, yeah, it, this uh, this brought me back a little bit, seeing the, the big Bonnaroo stage. But I want to, like, point out, you know, so you can watch this show. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it in the Radiohead Public Library. It thankfully starts, like, before Radiohead hits the stage with, like, the pre-show music, if you watch the video. And what I want to point out is that there was a glow stick war <laughs> for the last couple minutes before Radiohead hit the stage, which is like an absolute perfect like jam band thing. Uh, you know, it started with Fish, I believe, uh, in uh, sort of 96. Uh, the Clifford Ball was a famous one. The Went was, I think, the most famous one. Uh, but yeah, like Radiohead show, they're about to come sing a bunch of songs about how the world's going to hell uh, and people are throwing glow sticks around. So. Oh, man. I'm just right imagining... off the bat. Yeah. I'm just imagining like hardcore deadheads being like, oh, talk about glow sticks. <laughs> just getting furious. It's like, <laughs> there's none of that chicanery at a dead show. We're not going to have glow sticks flying all around. You're right. And you wouldn't normally have it at a Radiohead show either. But yeah, I agree. It's kind of cool that they were, you know, the, it's like a real Bonnaroo experience to have glow sticks flying as Radiohead comes out. And the first two songs that they play. Uh, are two Hail the Thief songs. They're, they're starting out with They're There and 2 plus 2 equals 5. I made this joke earlier, but yeah, I was just like imagining the dead coming out and playing like Promised Land. You know, like what the, <laughs> you know, because like Radiohead, they're about, there's supposed to be this band that like makes grand departures. You know, Kid A was this grand departure from guitar rock. I really think that like, the craziest thing that Radiohead could do if they wanted to be unpredictable would be to do a Chuck Berry's covers record. Just a blues cover album. Like Just, uh, like Clapton doing, what was it, Old Sock or whatever his Yeah, album exactly. Was. <laughs> That's right. And call this one like Old Chuck. And <laughs> like just have like, t- like uh, Tom York like duck walking across the stage. <laughs> he kind of duck walks. Played some Johnny Be Good. <laughs> I think that would blow people's minds. That would be honestly, that would honestly be like the biggest surprise. Like you're used to them making these glitchy electronic records, but right. play some blues. But um, I think what's notable about They're There 
we mentioned the two drummer lineup that they started utilizing in the 2010s. There's actually three drummers on stage for right. there there. So they're actually outdeading the dead at the beginning <laughs> of the show. It's almost a drum circle uh, of Radiohead because yeah, Ed O'Brien and Johnny Greenwood start out with like the little like uh, you know mini toms or whatever. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty awesome opener. Like I so I don't know. We haven't got into this yet. But like, I wrote down some opinions in our uh, show notes that Steve, I think, took issue with right off the top. Well, uh, you're more you're more of a casual Radiohead fan. Well, it's it's not so much that it's that I, so I have a lot of bands that I fell like deeply in love with in the late '90s and early 2000s, and then uh, kind of drifted away from. So they're almost like I always describe it as like I have bands that are like ex girlfriends that. I had a really like passionate crush on and then when I like fell out of love with them I like turned on them badly. So uh people who know my like online like uh history know that Wilco is like the the, the biggest exemplar of this <laughs> because I wrote a lot of pitchfork reviews about Wilco as I was turning away from Wilco, but Radiohead has like the like less extreme version of that where I was all in on Radiohead from OK Computer uh, through Kid A and Amnesiac and then Hail to the Thief I didn't really like and then I just kind of like I didn't hate them but I was very cool on them uh, for the rest of the 2000s so my issue with this show if I have an issue and I like this show a lot I think it's a pretty amazing show is that all the Hail to the Thief stuff and to a lesser extent the In Rainbow stuff just doesn't really uh, hit me as hard as the older material and this is you know it's it's probably about half hail to the thief and in rainbows right yeah i would say it's about right yeah so but i think i warmed up to a lot of that material through these performances which are are very good and like this opening duo is is part of that like you like because you talk about in the book that hail to the thief is sort of their return to rock quote unquote yeah album yeah like kid a and amnesiac you know, those albums made during the same sessions, again, in 99 and 2000, very long, protracted, very frustrating. And with Hail to the Thief, the idea was that they're just going to go in and knock out an album in a few weeks. And it was also inspired by the fact that, like, when they went on the road to play the Kid A and Amnesiac songs, they rediscovered their love of just playing live and just realizing, hey, we're great at just being a rock band. Like, let's just be a rock band um, on our next record. And you know uh, the reason why they're leaning on that album so much in the show is that that was the most recent Radiohead record at the time of this gig, even though the album was like three years old at this right. point. Um, and of course, in Rainbows was the album that they were working on, but it wasn't released yet. Um, so yeah, you have this very kind of slam bang opening to the show. Like there, there is like this mid tempo track with I think a really great ending. Like mm-hmm. I think it's like one of the most powerful moments in their catalog. Like when this song picks up at the end and really starts to rock out. And then they go into two plus two equals five, which is just like this, this furious, very fast paced song. So they're really kind of going for the gusto at the beginning. Uh, and then they go into two in rainbow songs after that 15 step and weird fishes arpeggi. And I mean, I feel like this was your most controversial opinion for me. (laughs) Because you said you're not really a Weird Fishes fan, right? Right. But I think I've become a fan over the last two weeks of listening to the show and listening to the Radiohead catalog again. Like, to me, like, 
a Radiohead song called Weird Fishes <laughs> was really like, it seemed like self-parody at the time, I think. And I, like part of what turned me off on Hail to the Thief and to a lesser extent in Rainbows. I mean, Hail to the Thief, you talk about this in the book, but it, it felt like a very overtly political album. And I was very, I had like a strong aversion to political music in the 2000s, which I think is just a like, cliche indie rock fan thing to believe where it's like you don't i didn't want songs that like directly addressed politics (laughs) like i wanted very like opaque lyrics and uh things that were not reminding me of like what was going on in our daily lives at that time and so like that album is opaque though there's really just like that two plus two equals five is really the only song that like because that's on like quotes George Orwell like that in a way you could say a self-parody because Orwellian had been this adjective affixed to Radiohead mm-hmm. throughout their career at that point going back to OK Computer and then they're actually like making Orwell references in a song starting with the song title <laughs> um, but like the rest of that record like they're not really there's no like you know like George W. Bush sucks type songs right. really on there uh, well, you brought up a good point in the book where it was like the first, I think even maybe it was, you were quoting Tom York saying like the first song of the record sort of sets the tone for how people experience the rest of the album. And I think I very much fell for that trap where I was like, are they really doing this like very like, you know, overtly anti-Bush, anti-war album right. right now. And like, while I agreed with that stance, it was not necessarily like a, what that I wanted to hear something that overt. So yeah, so I'm I'm, st- I, I'm I'm still getting over that. But that's more of a Hill of the Thief thing. And I think in Rainbows, I remember liking when it came out. I just never had that emotional attachment to it that I was surprised that a whole generation younger than us seems to have. Because you talk about how that's like the millennials Radiohead album. I think so. I mean, I feel like Radiohead, if you're going to compare them to, like, say, Pearl Jam, for instance, like, Pearl Jam, all their classic albums came out in the 90s, and they've continued on since the 90s, but they're frozen in that time, I think, in a way, Mm -hmm. creatively anyway, that they're looked at as a 90s band, whereas Radiohead, they had Kid A, which ushered them into a new decade, and then I think in Rainbows, it just became this, like, other album that became an event for people, if you're an older fan, you loved it. But there was also these younger people that could have like a great modern day Radiohead album and they could embrace it too. And I think it's what enabled them to become like one of the only real rock bands that can, to this day, headline festivals. You know, like right. they, they headlined Coachella, which uh, I think that was in 2017. And like, just imagine any like other 90s rock band being able to do that like you can't right. like Radiohead's really the only one that can do that what's interesting about these next two songs in the set list as i said 15 step and weird fishes which by the way i have to say like being a fish fan you can't knock weird fishes as a song title there's so <laughs> many dumber song titles and god love them and i love fish and like I, i'm not saying dumber as like a negative thing necessarily but like kind of goofy or you might look at it without knowing anything else and go oh that's but that's- but the thing is like radiohead is not goofy right so they have a higher standard they have to meet for me. Well, maybe they are. Maybe it's, it's Tom being goof, goofball. There, <laughs> we just don't appreciate it. But I don't. Um, I don't think Weird Fish's Arpeggi is a goofy song. I mean, no, yeah. but it is funny though because I feel like these two songs. I think especially Weird Fishes is a song that I can imagine jam bands playing, and I know, like for instance, yeah. Goose 
the the young jam band of the moment um, <laughs> has covered that song. Oh, the hell, um, okay, yeah, and because there's a spaciousness to that song, and it's there's and again it has a strong groove, but it's a song that you could very easily kind of take in a jammy direction, even though Radiohead doesn't do that themselves. And I think also Fifteen Step, the point you made earlier that was very astute, talking about the groove centric nature of of jam music being able to be danceable mm-hmm. 15 step is a danceable song while also having kind of an unusual time signature right which is a very jam band thing to do right i mean the dead did it fish does it like it's sort of like the prog influence on jam bands seeping in that they don't play everything in four four so yeah i i, I could see it especially weird fishes arpeggi like the fact that it is based around this like arpeggiated riff hence the name and it just sort of builds it swells to this big climax without really changing a lot is a very jam band sort of trick right it's very bob weir yeah and it's like that's that's kind of what won me over is that it gets you into that like uh sort of zone of just like you know hearing this repetition over and over but still like building an emotional intensity sort of a morning dew sort of phenomenon i guess lot of radiohead songs that have like a bob weir structure it's just that like bob weir doesn't sing like tom york he doesn't have the fire boy <laughs> voice like it's if, like the opposite yeah, yeah if, if, if tom york had like more of the like bar band like howl that bob weir has like mm-hmm. i wonder how different weird fishes would sound if it would sound more like looks like rain for instance or you know <laughs> black throated wind where it's just you know would would because i mean in a lot of ways you know tom york he's also just yelling at the sky about the rain in a lot of songs. You know, he's <laughs> doing true. something kind yeah. of similar. It's just that his voice has this sort of, again, choir boy quality to it where right. it just translates differently. Um, Instead of the rain, it's uh, capitalism. <laughs> uh, exactly. So the next track, um, Exit Music for a Film. You know, again, I think this is a great version of it. Um, in a way, this is almost like their cowboy song. <laughs> uh, really? Wow. Well, just in the not lyrically, but um I think that the acoustic guitar at the beginning ah uh, yeah was in some way inspired by like and I could be making this up. I don't know if Radiohead said this or if this was like a music critic that made this connection, but like to like a Johnny Cash live at Folsom Prison type guitar sound. Mm-hmm. Because the song is sort of a 
It's folky, right? Right. At the beginning, yeah, it's very kind of desolate sounding. On the record, it, I mean, this live version isn't all that different, really, from the studio version. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts out as very, again, plaintive, folky, and then, like, the Mellotron comes in, and then, you know, we're going in a more sci-fi direction, really, by the end of the song. Right. Um Bob doesn't really take it to a sci-fi place in his cowboy songs. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, just trying to connect it to the Grateful Dead. I, I feel like this is serving the same kind of purpose early in the set, essentially, that a cowboy song would. Yeah. Calling it a cowboy song reminds me of how the Westworld show used it as like actual exit music for an episode, which I think was the point that I stopped watching Westworld because right. I was like, if they're going to make such a on-the-nose uh, choice uh, musically, then this show is not really going where I want it to go. Black Mirror um, did the same thing, too. There's a Black uh, Mirror episode where they It's used... crazy to me that people would be, music supervisors would be that, like, shallow to be like, what? What? what's the exit music for this episode? Oh, how about the song called Exit Music? Well, uh, uh, for, for people who don't know it's called Exit Music, <laughs> they wouldn't know because they don't say exit music they don't say exit music for a film <laughs> maybe then it'd be more on the nose but like yeah you're right it does seem kind of an obvious thing right um, but i'm more interested i want to talk about the next two songs after that because we have kid a yeah. yeah and dollars and cents this to me seems like the closest to like a jam band show hmm. okay these two songs just because um you have, you have kid a which is a song that they really took in a different direction live. Like on the record, it's this very sort of muted, subdued instrumental and live. They were able to turn it into, again, it's, it's an atmospheric piece, but they, they turned it into a radio song, radio head song live. Like it just builds and it has this dramatic payoff that I don't think it has on the record. Well, yeah, it, it blows my mind that, Kiday is even a song they would choose to play live because I remember the first time I heard the album Kiday, I could not believe how weird this song was. <laughs> like it was as a second song where you could even understand like what he was saying in the midst of the song. So anytime and it pops up frequently in their set list too, right? Like it's like a pretty commonly played song even to this day. So that's uh that's wild to me that they turned it into a, a live staple. And it just makes me think of like, you know, again, like it's not a perfect analogy, but this is, I think, akin to like a space section part of a dead show, it, which is right. why it's it, which is why it's interesting to me that it's like so early in this show. Again, this sort of atmospheric exploration into space. Again, it's not a perfect analogy because it's not a freeform improvisation. It's not as out there really as the as the dead would get. But in the context of Radiohead, I mean this is I, them sounding about as abstract on stage as they really get. Um mm-hmm. so I think it works in that regard. And then Dowers and Cents to me, again I, I referenced this song earlier. This song did come out of a studio jam. Um and I think you can hear that even on like the finished song like it is a song where it doesn't really even feel like a song i think it's more about the interplay between tom york's voice in this twisty turny rhythm section and like the guitars that are very meandering that Mm -hmm. it that really ends up getting i think powered by the rhythm section like phil selway's drums really kind of kick the intensity as the guitars which appear to, to not really be doing much early in the song 
get kind of crazy and it I think goes to a pretty cool place. Like this song is one that I came to really love after listening to Bootlegs. I think it's it's such a great live highlight for them. Uh, yeah. Whereas on the record, I think it's good, but it seems like more of a mood piece on the record. Yeah, yeah. Not not yeah, kind of a forgettable song, I would say. And I like Amnesiac a lot. Like I think I like it more than the average Radiohead listener, I would think, because Amnesiac seems to kind of get dissed as like the Leftovers album. But right, yeah, Dollars and Cents is not one that really pops out to me. But yeah, you're right. It's got kind of like a gooey feel that is very jammy in some ways and translates well to the live setting. So yeah, I agree. I mean, I think uh, you, you've sort of that that description of it and knowing sort of the backstory of how they did it in the studio is has changed my feelings on a little bit. Um, but by the way, I, I need to hop back to Kid A for a second, just to point out the most direct, like Kevin Bacon, six degrees connection between Radiohead and the dead is that maybe the first time I was aware of John Mayer was other than your body is a wonderland. I probably knew that song first, but the second thing I knew about John Mayer was that he put out a cover of Kid A, like right after Kid A came out the album in 2000. And I was I was shocked that you hadn't ever heard of this uh, uh, when I pointed it out to you. Yeah. But there, if you if you look it up online, you can hear the John Mayer like acoustic solo cover of Kid A, which back in two thousand like popped out to me because I had no idea who John Mayer was. Um, but he actually like sang the song without all the distorted vocals because I didn't even realize there were like words to that song necessarily because it's just like Tom kind of like they they've they've corrupted his voice so much on the Radiohead album version that it just kind of sounds like another instrument almost like a, like a, like a trumpet or like a synthesizer. Uh, and then John Mayer played it just kind of like straight up as like an acoustic folk song. And it was like that, you know, I, 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 I dug that. Like I'm, I'm definitely, you know, on record as being the anti John Mayer uh, part of this podcast but that was like a version that i was like wow this is a totally different uh take on this song that really you know changes it a lot in my mind like re reorients how i think of this as a song instead of just like you know sort of a mood piece like you've talked about with a lot of the kid a material so it's something to look up uh if you if you didn't weren't aware that that was out there because i think it's just like a b-side on a single so i don't even know if it's on a proper album and it seems to have been memory hold we've got I don't know why 
I wasn't aware of that. I was kind of like upset with myself that I didn't know that because I would have loved to have mentioned that in the book, like John Mayer covering Kid A. Maybe yeah. even writing a whole chapter just about that. <laughs> it would have been amazing. Next time uh, you got to consult me earlier in the process. I know. Steve. God damn it. I'm, 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 I am upset. I, you know, for the paperback, I'm going to write a, a chapter <laughs> right. just on the John Mayer. Special Kinney bonus material, yeah. Cover. So uh, as this uh, as the show unfolds, you're really seeing songs being clustered by album in a way because you know, we, we, you know, we've just had um, – these two songs like from the Kid A era and now we're going to have a song that is like really I think considered the highlight of this show in a way which is Videotape which is a song another new song it appeared on in Rainbows about a year or more than a year after this gig and um, on the record it's this very you know beautiful paranoid uh, haunting song all words that you often hear used to describe Radiohead. It's a Tom York at the piano. And um, it's a song I always liked on In Rainbows, but like this live version, again, you know, I think this is true of like a lot of the songs that we're talking about here. It just has like a power and a sweep to it in this live version that like makes me like this live version even more than the studio version. And I think it really shows like what Radiohead is capable of doing, you know, because we keep talking about how like they're not a jam band. And of course we love jamming. We like the improvisation. We love the surprise that comes from it. But I think one thing that you see from this show is that the advantage of not jamming is that you end up with a much more focused concert where it's almost all peaks going Mm -hmm. from show to show. And I think that approach can be boring if you're interested in listening to every gig a band plays uh, because you're not, again, going to have the surprises really come up as much as you would with the Grateful Dead that you get but um what they're able to do with this song which is a really like, relatively straightforward song uh i think it just shows like the uh the upside of that approach uh just the focus and the power that comes through uh in this rendition yeah there's a pretty interesting short article from new york magazine in 2009 uh from the same tour or sorry 2006 uh where they talked to uh it sounds like it was entirely talking to Ed O'Brien, who is usually sort of the spokesperson for the band, I think, <laughs> um, about how Radiohead builds its set lists. And we talked about earlier how they they do change their set list a lot for a band that is not a jam band, uh, but it is also kind of like modular. So they have certain songs that play certain roles in their set and they can kind of swap those songs in and out and provide some variety, but still kind of get the same dynamic within the show uh so i think they got by this point really good at crafting like an emotional narrative over the course of the concert and that's always something that i look for in like a grateful dead or a fish show is you know what sort of story do they tell through their songs and those bands leave it more open to chance i think uh what kind of story they're going to tell from night to night just based on what songs they play whereas radiohead is like they're they're pretty scripted but at least they have some variation in what they can play to hit those emotional notes over the course of the night so yeah i can see where you're coming from where it's like they are going to be more reliable in hitting those highs uh but it at at the like sacrifice of 
you know, totally leaving it up to chance. Like, what are we going to, what story are we going to tell from night to night? I think they kind of tell the same story. It's just what songs do they choose to tell that story? Uh, so it, you know, it's, it's equally good and I'm not going to knock it and not many bands can pull off what a grateful dead does or did from night to night. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's still satisfying and this is a, you know, a pretty epic set in terms of its emotional highs and lows. So, uh, as far as like videotape, uh, that's a song that I really like off in rainbows. And it's a song that I think benefits really well from its studio arrangement. Cause it has this sort of like, it, it's called videotape and it has sort of like a skipping tape effect, uh, through a lot of the song, which sounds gimmicky on paper, but actually works quite well, I think. And live, I don't think they quite maybe they hadn't come up with that gimmick yet. It sounds like they're kind of doing it a little bit through how the rhythm section is sort of stuttery, uh, but it doesn't quite hit the same notes for me. So I was surprised when you uh, pointed out in the book and, and hear that this is like the definitive version of the song among Radiohead fans, but maybe it's just something that I, uh, you know, being a casual fan, as you say, I don't quite get. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. 
Hey folks, just like Bobby hates rain, I hate my lawn. I've got patchy grass, tons of weeds, and I hate spending precious free time taking care of it. So I'm very interested in Sinlon. Sinlon is the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass in North America. They make safe, clean, environmentally friendly turf. No watering, no pesticides, no mowing. Their artificial grass is made from bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane, and it's made right here in the USA. Sinlon sent us a couple samples, which is a funny thing to get in the mail, but it looks and feels crazy realistic, and the kids love jumping on it. I can see how it would work great for a lawn, a playground, a patio, or anywhere else you might need some low-maintenance greenery. For instance, right now, Sinlon is running a contest to win their Dave Pell's Greenmaker Putting Green System. So you can enjoy pro-quality putting in your home or office. Go to Sinlon, S-Y-N-L-A-W-N, dot com slash 36FTV, check out their products, and enter the contest by August 31st. That's sinlon.com slash 36FTV. So now we're going to move into two more songs from OK Computer. We have No Surprises and Paranoid Android. We've already had exit music from a film uh, earlier in the show. And it's interesting just thinking about like how Radiohead is pacing this this show because Radiohead, you know, they don't do the two-set format, but they kind of mm-hmm. do it at this show because they end up playing a very long encore. It's basically like two encores. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost equal to like another set. So you can think of this in a way as like a two set Radiohead concert, uh, which would be another jam band parallel. And, you know, we're at this point where they're drawing two songs from OK Computer. I have to say, uh, just for the record, that OK Computer is my favorite Radiohead record. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote about Kid A in this book, and I love Kid A, but... OK Computer just came along at a certain time in my life where it just blew me away. Uh, I was 19 years old when that record came out. So it, it kind of created, it, it was like the, the perfect alignment of like a great record and a very impressionable time in my life where like <laughs> I wanted, I wanted my own Dark Side of the Moon. I wanted my own, uh, yeah. you know, just like pet sounds, like a record like that. And I felt like OK Computer was it. Um, and I have to say like these two versions, these, these two songs, um, are both great. I love both of them. And I thought these were really good performances. But it is a little bit tough sometimes with a band like Radiohead, unlike The Dead, where they have great studio versions of these songs. And I don't feel like these live versions, in this case, like topped what they did on the record. So yeah. with, with, with a band like Radiohead, unlike maybe like with The Dead, 
they do have to compete sometimes with their own records and and they don't always come out ahead. Yeah. No, I think uh Okay, Computer was when I fell in love with Radiohead. I didn't really connect with the Benz, even though that was like a big cult favorite. And, you know, of course I loved Creep, like every kid in the 90s. Uh, but yeah, it was, I saw, I think the video premiere of Paranoid Android on MTV. Like, I think it was the day that it, it came out. Uh, and I, I heard that song, I saw that video, and I remember riding my bike immediately to Best Buy to buy <laughs> OK Computer. It was like one of those moments where I was like, I need this album. I need it right now. So I went and I got it. Uh, so OK Computer was definitely when I fell in love with Radiohead, but you you nailed it in the book that there is like a micro generation just younger than you that uh, where Kid A is their like, uh, favorite, like... Uh, canonical radiohead album and i think for me i am of the kid a generation where i think kid a is my favorite even though i love okay computer a lot uh but i am surprised that like they don't lean more heavily on okay computer in this set i mean they play a lot of it like four or five songs right but if you're playing a big festival okay computer seems like the obvious choice right like you would draw heavily from these songs which are a little bit weird and eccentric in a radiohead way but also have that like anthemic anthemic almost U2 type quality to them. Like they always have like a big climax, a big sort of aria uh, format structure uh, that you would think would play big for a big crowd. So I, I kind of respect that they don't play more of OK Computer than they do here. Uh, though they do hit, I guess, kind of the highlights. And this is, you know, where they play Paranoid Android, which is to nobody's surprise, probably my favorite Radiohead song because it has multiple parts and is a big, song sweet uh but i agree like the 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 studio version of paranoid android is so perfect that every live version i've heard of it it, it's still a great song but it's not this idealized version of the song and it's not like they're taking it in a new direction that would make me uh you know feel differently about it compared to the studio version i'm just kind of like yeah this is great to hear this live but it's not you know how i think of the song in my mind after that, we go into another Hail to the Thief song, The Gloaming. And I feel like this uh, song, I think it's a pretty good song. It, it, it's clearly them extending what they were doing on Kid A, carrying it over to Hail to the Thief. I think Hail to the Thief, in a way, was their album where they put everything that they had done on their previous records on, on that record. It, it's what I call like the greatest hits album without the hits type record, where yeah. you know, and bands that around for a while they inevitably do this like where they'll kind of cover all the styles of their career on one record and this is like their kid a type song and i think if there's a criticism of that record it's that it's too long and i think even like radiohead felt that way after the fact that i think there's like 15 or so songs on that record and right. you could probably cut four or five and, and every album since has been like 40 minutes long, right? Right. And I think with, yeah, with in Rainbows, I think part of what they were going for on that record was to do the anti-Hail to the Thief, like in terms of the length. It's a very succinct record. And they had a lot of B-sides that they ended up putting out. There's like a, basically like a an adjunct record that they put out a little bit mm -hmm. after in rainbows. So they could have had like a really long record, but they, they made a very conscious decision to have, I think it's like a nine song record. Um, it's like nine or 10 songs. 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I don't have a whole lot to say about the gloaming otherwise, unless you do. It's just like this is. It kind of epitomizes Hail to the Thief to me. Is that uh, you know they recorded it very fast. It wasn't like this long tortured process like Kid A and Amnesiac and. I think you can kind of hear it in a lot of the Hail of the Thief songs, like the gloaming, where it feels like an idea that is like pretty good, but it doesn't really get taken up to that next level that they brought all the Kid A Amnesiac stuff to. Like it's it's sort of half-baked in a way that it's fine, it sounds pretty good, but it doesn't really stick uh, like a lot of the older stuff to me. Uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of my beef with Thief in general, is that... There seems like a lot of songs that with a little more time in the oven could have been great, but instead they're just pretty good. Yeah, and I think they would agree with that, too. Mm-hmm. I think they felt like they uh, should have spent more time on it after they put it out. Um, these next two songs, we have the National Anthem and Climbing Up the Walls. Of course, National Anthem is from Kid A. Climbing mm-hmm. Up the Walls is from OK Computer. The thing that links these songs is that Johnny Greenwood's doing this thing where he would he was like integrating like talk radio, like I think yeah. it's live talk radio into the songs. And, yeah. Uh, is it first... live or not? I was trying to figure that out. I don't it's, know. It's, That's a good it question. It works too perfectly in this song. And I'm like, can this really be up to chance? Uh, because like they get to the end of national anthem and the, the radio is saying something about crappy pop songs, which is great. And if that was like total serendipity, that's amazing. Uh, but I was trying to listen to the radio and figure out if it was actually a true radio. And it looks like he's playing like a transistor radio on stage, which is hilarious, by the way. Johnny Greenwood is up to all sorts of funny business through the whole set. It's like fascinating to watch him play basically a different instrument on every song of the entire set, some of which are just like a pedal <laughs> right. or a radio or a weird you know, the Andes Martineau. How do you actually say that? Is that right? Andes, I think Andes that's Martineau. right, yeah. yeah uh, like the, like the weird old... theremin keyboard thing that he plays on a lot of songs. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, kind of made me think like, uh, I mean, I guess the Dead kind of did stuff like that, like especially in their later years, like where it was at Bray Love that would incorporate like weird sounds into mm-hmm. uh, like their, their live mixes. Uh, I mean, like when I was, when I was watching this show, it kind of reminded me of like Zoo TV era U2. Like, yeah, they were doing like the mixed media thing on stage, and it was like, it seems like with Radiohead, especially like in the national anthem, that there is some sort of commentary woven into these snippets that they're that they're playing. Because the national anthem is obviously this very sort of angry, blistering song, very again like dystopian to use an overused term to describe radiohead uh songs but um yeah you, you talked about that earlier like how the dead especially like toward the end of like jerry garcia's life were getting like pretty adventurous with incorporating like found sounds or like like sounds that weren't music necessarily they were but they that they were integrating into uh their live mixes Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I I love the sort of Radiohead U2 comparisons like in your book and elsewhere because like it's it's just kind of perfect like to describe the different directions these two bands went, right? Like Radiohead very easily could have been the next U2 in a lot of ways and they have you know kind of spent their whole career avoiding that <laughs> like it, it that that that's probably too pat 
uh, uh, to describe what they've done, but like they have done everything they could to not go the direction that U2 went, even though U2 kind of had their own Kid A amnesiac period uh in the in the 90s but like the fact that radiohead went their own way and got weirder and weirder and just dove deep in their eccentricities and yet still could have this like collective festival moment i mean like tom even at points like there's there's a point at the end of the show where he hops down from the stage and does the sort of like like you know waving his hands at the audience thing that is sort of like a very like slacker version of like Bono at Live Aid <laughs> when he's hopping hopping down into the camera pit and you know waving at the audience and whipping people up into a frenzy but it's it it's just funny to think of Radiohead as like this sort of self-deprecating variant of U2 uh where they're somehow doing the same thing that U2 does without you know, totally uh, compromising themselves to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think what Radiohead, I, I don't know to what degree they they realize this in the moment, but I think, you know, U2 is a band that was very deliberate about saying, we want to be the biggest band in the world. And mm. they were really talking about that a lot in 2000 when Kid A came out and then U2 put out All That You Can't Leave Behind which was their comeback record after they put out pop and they went into this weird period where it seemed like they were totally passe and, and not going to escape the 90s, essentially. And they transcended that by making a record that was very much inspired by like their late 80s period, like a, a Joshua Tree type retread. And like, but what Bono would say so much during that period is that like, we're we're reapplying for the job of biggest band in the world, you know, like, right. which is something only Bono would say. And then <laughs> Radiohead, though, I think realized that like being the biggest band in the world wasn't going to mean anything really in the new century, you know. Like it, 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 it's true. Like here we are in 2020, and what does being the biggest rock band in the world even mean? Like what does that signify? You know, it, it right. has really no cultural cachet anymore. And like I think in a sense, you could argue that the path that Radiohead took and even like a band like Pearl Jam took is more of like a Grateful Dead type model where Mm -hmm. you aren't trying to dominate the culture. You're trying to kind of create your own culture or like around your band and, uh, and the Grateful Dead and also fish of course are like the best examples of that. Like where like, yeah, we're not going to pursue chart success. We're not going to play the pop star game. We're going to do our own thing. And we're going to basically create a world that our fans want to be a part of. And that's going to be enough for us. And it really feels like Radiohead pursued that route rather than the U2 route where you're trying to have hits all the time. And my memory of U2 from that period is playing the Super Bowl after 9-11 right and having a big like giant american flag <laughs> and just right, like right. really leaning into like we're the band that is going to lead us out of this dark moment in american history whereas uh you know radiohead was like we predicted this dark moment in not just american but world history and we're the band that uh are going to soundtrack the next two decades not you two yeah and we're also going to you know 
in a way, I think the idea with Radiohead, and and I think this is also true of the Grateful Dead. It's like we're trying to have a human connection with our fans, and yeah. uh, we we want we don't want there to be other forces in between us, whether it be a corporate force or some kind of cultural you know institution. You know, we don't want there to be a middleman. We want to be as direct between us and them as possible. And it really feels like more and more that that is the model for having a sustainable career. Like you mentioned mm-hmm. Wilco earlier. I feel like mm-hmm. they've done that same thing. You know, like other kind of long-running rock bands, like following the example of the Grateful Dead, even if like you aren't a fan of their music, is the path forward. Uh, because if you're relying on sort of like a corporate structure or a pop relevance type, you know, uh, equation, those things are so fleeting and so fickle that uh, you could be hot one minute and then the next you're not. And then you're sort of ruined for the rest of your career, you know, because mm-hmm. you have this stigma on you. And, uh, you know, I think Radiohead, because of the path that they took, they were able to avoid that stigma, essentially. And they could just be who they were. And new generations, new generations could come to them and not have this baggage attached that U2 has, for instance. Uh, right. So, uh the next song we're going to get to on this list, and really I'm going to group these two together too, because you have Nude, which is a song that would end up on in Rainbows um, after this show, and then you have Street Spirit, Fade Out. And I put this in our outline. I was kind of kidding, but I'm also kind of serious. I, I I don't think these songs are similar musically, but I think in terms of like the emotional payoff and like where they often sit in each band's set list, I think Street Spirit, in a way, is like Radiohead Stella Blue. Because it's this beautiful kind of uh, stately ballad that um, builds to a big climax. Uh, And yeah, it just has that quality to me. And there's a couple other Radiohead ballads that do that. Because you can see in the set list that they're, they're playing like a hit, a rocker, then like a new song. And then they're following the new song with like a comforting song. You know, so you're never lost for too long. Um, and in a way to play a song like Nude, which is like this mid-tempo kind of ethereal song that wouldn't have been as maybe immediately satisfying as a song like 15 Step, it seems like playing Street Spirit after that is a way to sort of buffer that for the audience and to make it a little more comprehensible. Yeah, I really love like the way Radiohead uses the Benz material live, like throughout their concert history is like you know as you talk about there's always this tension between radiohead being a great guitar rock band but also not wanting to be a great guitar rock band (laughs) and trying to move as far away from that as possible and they know i i i think they're more at peace with that live where they can play all this weird electronic influence material but they know that they can always fall back on a song like Street Spirit or a song like The Benz uh, to just be like, here's the rock part of the set. <laughs> and so there, there is this sort of set long tension release where they're like, we're going to throw some dark songs at you, some strange songs at you, but it's going to like resolve itself at least briefly into some just like hard rocking alternative rock songs that they have in their pocket. Uh, we I, we should mention, I guess, the like the Radiohead avoidance of playing Creep, and it's I think, you know, 
this is a particular show where the the absence of creep is notable because as we talked about it's them getting out of their comfort zone a little bit uh, and playing for an audience that maybe isn't you know 100% Radiohead fans right it's fans that maybe only know even at this late date Radiohead as being the band that played creep uh so the fact that they don't play it at all is you know somewhat courageous i think in this show because you know they were they're not totally averse to playing it they'll play it from time to time but they do avoid playing it in this set uh but i think like the street spirit bends run is kind of like here's if you only know radiohead is the band that played creep and that was the 90s buzzbin band here's us giving you for about 10 minutes uh what what you think we are yeah i mean i think i think during this period especially they were not playing creep i feel like that song came back more maybe in the in the 2010s okay. i feel like there was this like extended period where they were not playing that song at all which to me is almost like a leftover remnant of like their 90s-ness that seems like a very mm-hmm. 90s thing to do like you have a hit and now we're not going to play the hit you know right. like nirvana would do that you know like yeah pearl jam Although, I mean, I feel like Pearl Jam still played Jeremy a lot. So Or, like, did Beck play Loser, like, at this point? Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But I think for Radiohead especially, they were really sensitive, I think, about being perceived earlier, early in their careers as being a one-hit wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that influenced their path for the next several records after that. I think culminating with Kid A. I think Kid A was, like, the ultimate, like, we're not just a dumb alternative rock band. We're an art band. And this is our art rock record, um, which you can really see. But yeah, you know, it's interesting in this era that like they were, I think, um, you know, not that far removed from from Kid A and Amnesiac, which, which at the time were, again, painted as these sort of anti-rock provocations. You know, there was like, there was like a Tom York quote where he basically says that, you know, we're not making rock music, you know, this is like a, we're taking like a, you know, we're, this is like a dry erase board, you know, like we're erasing ourselves and we're becoming something else. And in this show, you can really hear them being a rock band. And, you know, and, it, and that happens after Street Spirit, you go into the bands, you have Myaxomatosis, did I pronounce that correctly? I could never... Myaxomatosis, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Which is like a song from Hail to the Thief, which I always feel like sounds like Queens of the Stone Age. It's like very yeah. riffy rock song but then you end up at the end of i guess the set proper with how to disappear completely from from kid a and this is an interesting set closer because i guess this would be you know in a non-jam band setting like the end of the concert like we're gonna have like the fake encores that happen after this right but like in this show this feels like the end of the first set really because you have the Mm -hmm. encore very long encore. I think the encore is like maybe 10 songs or so. Mm-hmm. Close to that. Um, and it's like an hour. The main set's like an hour and a half, and the encores are uh, about an hour. About so an it, it, it kind of lines up to two sets, yeah. Um, and But yeah, like maybe not a typical closer. I mean, I think this song, it's a beautiful song, and it, and it builds to a peak, but... It's not a song necessarily. You would maybe expect like the Benz or Maximatosis mm-hmm. to end the set, and right, we're ending it with this song. Yeah, that that was kind of my take. Is that the Benz would have been. 
Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Oh, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Not cliche, I guess, but the more sort of natural closer to this first set, main set. Uh, And so adding on myxomatosis and how to disappear completely feels a little bit extraneous, but I don't know. uh, Like how to disappear completely as a set closer, uh, it kind of encapsulates this tension I was talking about earlier where like Radiohead is playing such dark, bleak material for such a huge crowd that is, you know, at Bonnaroo on the first night of Bonnaroo and partying hard and doing God knows what all day long. And to have a song like How to Disappear Completely as the climax of your set just really feels completely opposite to the mood uh, of of what you would find at a, at the Bonnaroo Festival. And I, I, I do think it still works. I mean, because it is a big, it's, you know, another song that has a big sort of epic climax. It's just if you pay close attention to the emotions of the song, it's not your typical festival climax. It's more of a, you know, insular, <laughs> depressing uh, climax. So, but, you know, you, you pointed out, like, it is a great song and it works because, of course, they are going to come back. But it, this just speaks to what a weird festival band Radiohead is to me, that they can get away with playing songs that are so dark, uh, but making them have this huge emotional connection to the audience.
there's something about them where they can play a song like How to, How to Disappear Completely, and it is like a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Even though it's not, like, there's no one kicking up volleyball really around, I think, during that. <laughs> right. There probably was at Bonnaroo. Probably someone was kicking. It's like, oh, yeah, Kid A, the, kick the volleyball on stage. Um, We're going to have a glow stick war to How to Disappear Completely, right? right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's like their biggest magic trick in this whole set, which I think is, it's it's to their credit that they can pull it off that. You know they can they can do that kind of material and it just it connects it works like improbably. Yeah, I mean, the, and just to connect it back to the Grateful Dead, you know, it's it's interesting to me because I feel like in a way the Grateful Dead's trick with that was that they could play something like Dark Star mm-hmm. and have it be a crowd pleaser, even yeah. though again, other than the recognizable maybe a minute or two that they play of that, it's like this free form jam you know that might go on for a half hour or 40 minutes um and you would look at that on paper and think why is that the thing that people would be most excited about but it is something where if you are a band like the dead or radiohead you can train your audience to expect certain things from you where coming from another band it wouldn't be a crowd pleaser but for this specific audience, it is. So, yeah, like for Radiohead, it's playing these dour songs that build to these swelling peaks. And for The Grateful Dead, it's just playing sort of their own brand of experimental rock music uh, mm-hmm. that if it doesn't go far enough, that's when it becomes disappointing. Like, <laughs> it's, it's exciting when, they, when they're going, like, way over the edge. You know, that's what we want. From the dead, and it's what you want from Radiohead. Like again, like if Radiohead, I joked about this earlier, but if they did do a blues album or Happy Go Lucky, you know, like party record, right? It'd be so weird. Like you don't want that from Radiohead. Yeah, if they close the set with a round and around, like uh, <laughs> that, that's a that's a different uh, mood altogether. Sure. So going into the encore here, or the second set, if we want to call it that, is a trio of amnesiac songs. You have you and Who's Army. You have Pyramid Song, and you have a radically different, really, version of Like Spinning Plates, a different version from what's on the record. You mentioned this earlier about how you're an Amnesiac fan, and Mm -hmm. it's true. Like I know, like, for me, and I write about this in the book, like, I've always had mixed feelings about that record that I think changed while writing this book. Um, I definitely came to appreciate that album more as I sort of dug into this period uh, it's really a record that has both the straightest songs from this era, which would be a song like You and Who's Army and even Pyramid Song, and then the most experimental, like like Spinning Plates on the record is like pretty radical, or like Dowers and Scents is a pretty unusual song, whereas right. I think Kid A is much more monochromatic, and it's designed to be a mood piece. Amnesiac, I think, is deliberately more of a grab bag type record and uh i think that's ultimately its charm right i so when i bought amnesiac i was backpacking around europe (laughs) like the sort of cliche post-college backpack trip and i bought amnesiac on cassette because i had only brought a walkman with me to europe i didn't i didn't even trust myself with a disc man while i was traveling around and i literally went the first time i listened to it thought that my walkman had broke 
when I got to, I think it was push polk revolving doors <laughs> where I was like, this cannot be an actual song, which really excited me in retrospect because by that point it was three albums into Radiohead reinventing themselves. And the fact that they could still, uh, you know, make me think that this was not actual music at that point uh, kind of blew me away that they were still pushing the envelope that hard uh, was that's what I wanted from Radiohead and is a little bit why I'm cool on Hail to the Thief because it seemed like the first sort of backwards step where they weren't trying to reinvent themselves with every album uh, but I do like Amnesiac as it's funny that you say that it's less of a mood album because I think it actually does have a consistent mood to me that is more of sort of like a mellow despair, whereas Kid A is more like histrionic in its, you know, dystopian point of view. I think Amnesiac feels more like the 2020 album to me where it's just like everything is horrible, but it's also moving in like slow motion and kind of boring Uh that it's just like you're just sinking into this melancholy and like these the first two songs especially you and whose army and pyramid song when you have tom on the piano and they're just these sort of gauzy songs uh that are the you know sort of they they feel i don't know sort of old-fashioned in a way a little bit like out of time a little bit like uh woozy is what I get out of Amnesiac, where it's just kind of a, kind of a, a a sad haze instead of this really visceral experience that you get from Kid A. So yeah, I like the stretch of the show because it's it's play, playing a bunch of songs that hit that mood for me. I should mention too that Pyramid Song is influenced, not directly. I think inspired would probably be a better word for me to use by by Charles Mingus. There's a Charles Mingus live record where right uh, that. Tom York was listening a lot to, and he was wanting to transpose that vibe into Pyramid Song. And I think, especially in the drumming, you can hear a certain jazziness to that song that didn't really exist in Radiohead music before that. And again, I think if you're if you're drawing connections between Radiohead and the Dead, of course, Charles Mingus is a huge touchstone artist for for Phil, and um, the jazz influence. I think again. There's no blues, there's no country in Radiohead, but I think jazz is somewhere that that is a genre where the, where the dead and Radiohead can commune. Can, can I? Though you made me think that uh, Radiohead should do a Egypt show, <laughs> an Egypt oh, run, and, and play the pyramid song in front of the pyramid like the that'd dead be rad, did, so. man. Yeah, that'd be that'd be super rad. Um, next song, of course, is "Fake Plastic Trees," and you know we were talking about "Creep" before being the most famous Radiohead song. I think this is probably like the second most famous song of theirs probably um or in the conversation i feel like if if there's someone in your life who's never really heard radiohead they'd probably know creep and i feel like this would be the second most likely song that they've heard and you know again i love making hackneyed connections between the dead and radiohead in this episode i really feel like this is their morning do you know in terms of like if we i think we've decided that morning do is the signature dramatic ballad in uh grateful dead uh lore and fake plastic trees to me is that for radiohead this is the song that they play starts out quiet it builds to like this incredible peak it's the song that if you're going to see this band you want to hear because it is the song that 
is intended to blow you away. And they get there in a different way than the dead do. I, I mean, I think, I mean, there's not like a real soloist in Radiohead. I guess Johnny Greenwood plays solos, but it's not the same as what Jerry Garcia does. Like Tom York is doing that with his voice. Like he plays the Jerry Garcia guitar lines with these, you know, vocal undulations that he goes into in his songs. So I don't know if that's a totally bizarre comparison to make, but I would just say in terms of where they sit emotionally in Radiohead concerts, like Fake Plastic Trees is the morning dew of yeah. this band. I think I've realized over the course of this conversation that Morning Dew probably is the one song that you can sort of be a link between the dead and Radiohead because Morning Dew, it's a cover, of course, but it's like a song about post-nuclear apocalypse, which would be, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of topic that Radiohead would write a song about. So, But it also, you're right, it does have that emotional climax that I think is common to a lot of, you know, big rock ballads, but is something that both the dead and Radiohead can do quite well and, you know, use a lot in a live setting. I mean, I think, I don't even know if you need to compare Tom's voice to Jerry's guitar, because you could just compare Tom's voice to Jerry's voice. Right. Which we've talked about Jerry is such a great singer, and maybe that's like a less um, recognized part of Jerry's genius is what a great vocalist he was. Uh, and, you know, they're both, they both have tenor voices, like high register voices. Jerry's isn't as high as Tom's, of course, but they both get a lot out of their voice that really contributes to the emotional resonance of each band's songs. So, yeah, I, I agree. Fake Plastic Trees is Radiohead doing sort of a by-the-numbers ballad in a lot of ways, like alternative rock ballad. Uh but, you know, they did it really well, and they did it once, and they didn't feel the need to do it again, and I respect them for that. Well, and I feel that they helped to write those numbers in a lot of ways with that song. I think that the bands that came after them that were imitating Radiohead, Coldplay being the biggest example, mm-hmm. they were working off the template of, of that song. And, of course, there's yeah. precursors to Fake Plastic Trees, but I think in that era, that song became a defining melodramatic british rock type song well that's uh, like uh the power ballad for alternative rock right so it's like the every rose has its thorn of <laughs> right right so i think rock. so i think like yeah i think it sounds by the numbers now but i would say that um it wasn't at the time i think they helped codify that sound with that and that's why they it's another reason why they made kid a and amnesiac like tom york came to hate the sound of his own voice. There's there's a quote mm-hmm. I think I use as an epigraph in my book, where he says it annoys me how pretty my voice is, right? And uh, you know, and on Kid A, he was submerging his voice a lot of the time, uh, and he wasn't going for those same sort of notes that he goes for in Fake Plastic Trees. You're right. I think Jerry Garcia is an amazing singer as well. I think the only thing I would say is that Jerry, the greatness of his vocals is that he's not pushing out. You know, there's something so sort of easy almost like a jazz singer about his vocals where he's not doing these runs or he, he's not ever over singing he's just sort of like breathing in and out and he has such a great quality uh just to the sound of his voice and then he let his guitar do this sort of more dramatic type up and down you know type movements and i, I just think tom york um especially on a song like that 
it's just so much more dramatic than Jerry Garcia ever would be as a vocalist, and he's kind of doing what Jerry would do with with his with his guitar and his in his vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I <laughs> I'm just imagining uh, Jerry Garcia singing a song like that, like like singing "Fake Plastic Trees." I think he would have killed it, uh, yeah. but he but he would have sung it in a much different way. I think. Um, so, yeah, I said that was like their morning do, and then. We have Body Snatchers that comes next. That's a song from, again, In Rainbows. And it's kind of an interesting version because the section in the song where uh, it, where Tom York is singing, it's the 21st century. Like, it's kind of a bridge, I think. They do it twice in the live version, and on the record it's once. So, and I think it's better just to have it once. Yeah. This version feels a little too long. One for um, the heads. <laughs> yeah. But then you get to Lucky, and... You know, we've talked about how there were dead shows that we've heard so far. I can't remember what Dick's Picks that was, where there were th- the three big ballads in the show. It was War- where they had Morning Dew, Warfrat, and Stella Blue. I can't remember. That was this season, I think. I can't remember what show that was. But to me, Lucky is the Warfrat of Radiohead, <laughs> where, again, it's another, I think, big ballad that they played at a lot of their shows. This is, of course, an OK Computer song. Um, and it's another song that like, I think it depends on the power of Tom York's voice being mm-hmm. this sort of virtuoso show stopping moment. I mean, cause the rest of the song like isn't terribly complicated. Um, it's just really Tom York delivering it and kind of going for like the emotional jugular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really he- hear them hitting those notes in this part of the set, I think in a similar way to like what the Grateful Dead would do, like in their second mm-hmm. sets. Yeah, this first encore is a lot of it's a lot of mellow material with some exceptions. Uh, it it definitely feels like the soul searching part of the set, I guess. Like it's a little less musically complex and a little more like hitting the jugular <laughs> the as far as you know as directly as radiohead would do it um with fake plastic trees and lucky being sort of the the standouts of like here are some real ter- tear jerkers or you know slow dancers uh depending on your mood uh yeah it, it's got kind of like a mellow feel at the end of this set uh, if, if if we're considering this a second set, like the first half of it is very chill, which I kind of respect. Uh, sort of like a late night Radiohead feeling that maybe if they were playing a shorter show, wouldn't quite dwell in this mood for so long. I think, I don't know. I'm not as familiar with the set list from the point when they weren't playing, you know, a 28 song set if if, if they would sort of stick to this vibe for so long. But it's... I kind of like it as like a swerve. Like it's not the big loud ending to their show. It's got more of a, a vibey feel to it. And then as we get to the end of this encore, is it fair to say this is like maybe the most jam band like part of this encore, at least because you have idiotique, which has a section in it that they would often do. I think at this time where it feels free form, although again, I'm not sure exactly how freeform it is. I, I feel like, again, if you listen to Idiotiques on different nights, this you know, the, the, the noisy section that comes towards the end would probably be a little bit different each night. But again, I don't think it's fully improvised. Yeah, not too off the rails, right? Yeah, but again, like, 
in the context of this show, it is like a very exciting moment. And I love this song anyway. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the great like, Radiohead songs. Police, which is like kind of like a relatively ramshackle version of that song, like they kind of screw up at the beginning of it. Right. I said that's the most like Grateful Dead moment of the entire set is that they start playing Karma Police and then they have to stop because I think Tom breaks a string or there's some like guitar issue. It's the only time they have a tech issue in the entire show, so it's like this is like the Dick's Picks moment here where. They leave the warts and all version in, <laughs> but I want to talk briefly about uh, Idiotech uh, and you know Tom York dancing in Idiotech specifically. <laughs> right. uh, he there's a there's a number of songs. So I, I think Idiotech was like the song that people first realized that Tom York has this weird dance style, which is kind of like like a ragdoll, like an epileptic seizure, I guess is maybe how I would describe it. It's a little bit David Burney too. I noticed in this set, like if you watch the video, like he does some kind of stop making sense moves. And of course, you know, Radiohead is named for a talking head song. So it's not the most insightful comment, but I think he did get a little bit of like his stage persona from sort of stop making sense david byrne like nerd fronting a rock band uh but anyway this is this is my hot take of the show and i'm leaving it for late uh just for the true heads but uh we talked earlier at the very top about uh you know which band member corresponds to each member of the dead i think tom's dancing is like the bob hamming it up of Radiohead <laughs> uh, because like, you know, Bob at this point in the show is where you would get like uh, sugar Magnolia or a good Lovin' or whatever, where Bob is just like totally going over the top to get the crowd going crazy. And Radiohead doesn't have that like masculine person to kind of whip people up into a frenzy. So the only way they can do it is with Tom York's like incredibly weird dancing style, which never fails to like light a fire under the crowd <laughs> i've noticed like people just like flip out every time he does some weird like limp limb <laughs> dance uh to an electronic radiohead song so that's kind of like uh, 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 a a strange grateful dead radiohead comparison here late in the show where you know he's kind of doing like the cornball bob antics uh physically instead of vocally Maybe he's got like a little bit of Brent too. He's got a little Brent action in there. Ooh, that's true. Yeah, I didn't think of that. that. Like, yeah, like you know, the system with the Dead is that. I mean, obviously Tom York plays guitar a lot, but sometimes he's just being a front man, 
And like yeah. the dead didn't have that ever. Like Jerry never like took his guitar off to just sort of like wiggle in front of the stage. Or maybe he did. I don't know. We need like a number crunch on that. Maybe one of our listeners can find like one show like where Jerry didn't have a guitar and he was Maybe maybe there was a Jerry dance at some point, you know, <laughs> or maybe Bob. I wonder if they ever dabbled in that, like where they just thought, you know what, like maybe we need. I guess Pigpen was that, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pigpen, I guess, would be the most traditional frontman act. I mean, there's some shows I've seen, like a show where Bob like climbs up the light rig, like a more of an Eddie Vedder move than a Tom York move, but like is kind of trying to do the like uh, I don't know Jim Morrison y front man thing uh but yeah you're right i don't think there's a sh- i don't think jerry is uh taking his guitar off and jiggling around for anything well so tom is the jerry he's also the bob he's also right. the pig pen yeah there we go he, he's carrying a lot of uh weight for this this metaphor <laughs> well even like you know in the karma police too you know there is like a like a sing-along at the end of that yeah wow. i know and this is where the like uh, again the the bleakness of Radiohead colliding with the festival atmosphere really gets weird. Is that there? Uh, he does an extra sing along of the Karma Police chorus, I guess, uh, at the end of this set, the end of this encore. Which I mean, people love it, and people all sing along. And Karma Police is a great song that you want to sing along to, but it's so weird that. Uh, yeah, that these are the words that a, a crowd of, you know, 100,000 people are singing along to. So then we get into the second encore. And this is, I think, a pretty cool move because they end up playing House of Cards, mm-hmm. which is another song that's going to be on in Rainbows. And, you know, in this encore section, you know, they're playing new songs. They're continuing, you know, they played Body Snatchers earlier. And now they're playing like a pretty mellow new song. And I think that's like, I mean, I've seen other bands do that, like with the first encore song, you you might play a curveball song because people are already excited that you're coming back out, so you can play something a little mellower and then chase it with a hit. That seems like a fairly common structure for a lot of bands, uh, because like you don't need people to be cheering with a hit; they're already cheering, so you could it kind of affords you some space to play something a little less well known, but. Um, you know, this is the part of the show like where the dead would be settling into like their second or third Chuck Berry cover, you know, a lot of times <laughs> at the end. You know, you want to or or playing Sugar Magnolia or something, like a song that is gonna get the people on their feet and happy as they're exiting. And it's interesting that like Radiohead's not really doing that here. Right. Well, it seems I don't know how verified this is, but if you look at the setlist FM listing for this show, it says that I might be wrong was listed on the set list, but they swerved and made a called an audible and played House of Cards instead, which definitely a really different feel between House of Cards and I might be wrong. So it's an interesting choice, but I think it actually kind of works. I'm not that fond of House of Cards. Like the thing within Rainbows is that it's definitely Radiohead's horniest album which is not really something I want from Radiohead. It's like Tom's like slow jams album. Uh, and it's the House Bobby of Cards. Album. Well, yeah, Bobby. I mean, I guess that's true. Like the, like horny grateful dead is not really what I want either. <laughs> and so maybe this makes sense, but yeah, House of Cards has got that, uh, 
slow sucks jam vibe to it as much as radiohead can pull that off and maybe it works i think it works in context it's like an end of a very long show uh send off uh but yeah it's uh yeah you're right it's it's a bold choice to play house of cards and then it's funny that you say like playing the new song before playing the hit because the hit in this case is everything in its right place which you're right it is like a radiohead hit and like one of their canonical trademark songs but i mean what a weird song to be a canonical trademark song for any band like that is when i first put on kid a i was working at a record store in ann arbor and we got a big box of Kid A CDs the day it came out, and we put it on like as soon as the store opened. Uh, and we just like were blown away by this incredibly weird song <laughs> leading off the new album by one of the world's biggest bands. And that incredibly weird song is now, you know, one of the songs that Radiohead is known for, uh, you know, 20 years later. So, and it works great as the big climax ending to this set. It's just. It's so weird that, that that's what things develop to. Yeah, I mean, it really shows how quickly they were able to, you know, turn that song into this, like, touchstone song. Because, you know, you know, Kid A, again, was supposed to be this provocation that some people thought, like, would end their career. And yet, here we are, you know, six years after that record came out, and now it is, it's like they're Freebird or something. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're going to play it at the end of the show. This is going to be the triumphant song. It brings people out of their feet, and you know, and I've seen Radiohead live, and I've, and the, this song has continued to have that placement in their set list, and it's always a song that gets people excited when it mm-hmm. comes on, and, and when they play it live, it is extended from the studio version. Again, it's like not improvised live, but it is jammed out, and it becomes mm-hmm. more of like a danceable, funky song, really live, and right. as sort of, um. I think on the record, like especially the first time you hear it, as you said, it is this sort of almost, I guess, a provocative song. It's like, wow, like what are they going to do after this track? This is so not what I expect from a Radiohead record. At least that was the feeling in 2000. Um, but when they play it live, it does almost become like a relatively feel-good jam. <laughs> and like I can see right. people feeling like oh yeah what a great show like this is how we're gonna send people out into the night of tennessee you know yeah with this track well even the the name of the song is like meant to be ironic right everything in its right place is like classic radiohead like here's a shallow statement about like sort of new agey thing that we are turning flipping on its head to talk about how like fucked up the world is (laughs) and like now it's become like the emotional resolution to their set without losing that power i mean it's still like a very creepy song but you're right they like kick up the rhythm section so that it's got more of a groove to it and i i it's i don't know i'm I'm such a sucker for this but it's so cool that they still like sample his voice live and i don't know how much of it is improvised and how much is preset but the fact that Johnny Greenwood's over there with his little like sampler pad, like live remixing Tom while he's singing it is, I don't know. I'm such a sucker for that kind of thing. And then like the fact that Tom leaves the stage like two minutes before the song actually ends and they're still like playing samples of his voice, even though he's totally gone. It's just, it's it's a great sort of like symbolic ending uh, to this weird band. Like 
that is almost like a reluctant, uh, you know, festival band in a lot of ways. And Tom being a reluctant frontman, and the fact that he can leave the stage and his voice is still kind of in this weird, distorted corruption like rattling around this big festival ground is just a very apt ending to this balancing act they pull off between wanting to deconstruct their sound and yet still provide this big communal experience to people so that's really why this set is a triumph to me is that they walk that balancing beam for so long for two and a half hours and pull off like both being sort of the U2 biggest band in the world while also you know, trying to subvert that at every step. Uh, just the fact that they can pull that off, that's why Radiohead is one of the most respected bands and why, you know, while I have my personal highs and lows with them, I will respect them forever and think they're a totally endlessly fascinating listen. That's the end of this show. We've reached the end of Radiohead at Bonnaroo in 2006. And hopefully you've gained a new appreciation of Radiohead. And also maybe you've gotten a new perspective on the Grateful Dead. Again, we're talking about a band that's not a jam band that isn't often grouped together with the Grateful Dead. But as we've, I think, established in this episode, Radiohead is a band that I think, even if they're not directly influenced by the Grateful Dead, I think they've been sort of influence environmentally you know in the way that a band as monumental as the grateful dead as profound of a presence in rock history you know they influence people without them even realizing it and i think radiohead is one of those bands in the way that they've approached technology as a rock band both on stage and also in the way that they've conducted their career and also i think again the point i made earlier about following their own muse and seeking to create a community around themselves rather than pursuing a more sort of pop oriented path the you know the world's greatest rock band u2 type path i think radiohead i think starting with kid a really rejected that idea and they pursued i think a path that the grateful dead were very pivotal pivotal in uh paving for rock bands of the future that yeah, you can be very successful. You can play arenas and stadiums without having, you know, songs on the radio or or catering to the mainstream. If you have integrity and also if you can establish a one-to-one connection with an audience. And clearly, I think the Grateful Dead have done that. 
and so have Radiohead. And then next season, we'll talk about how the uh, Chili Peps did that. (laughs) Exactly. So, okay, I'm sure you're all desperate to get back to the Grateful Dead, and we're going to (laughs) be doing that in our next episode, talking about Dick's Pick 16. And this is exciting. It's our first Dick's Picks in the 60s. Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, it's only like three months before Dick's Picks 4, so it's not like we're totally going into uh, virgin territory here, but yeah. First one in the actual 60s primal dead period. And I think it's going to be a fun one and, uh, you know, some fresh turf to talk about with the Grateful Dead when they were a little more raw and a little more uh, crazy. Well, I cannot wait to get into it. So we got to wait till the next episode, though. So for now, thank you for listening to 36 from the Vault. I hope you enjoyed our curveball episode. We'll be back in a few weeks with Dick's Pick 16. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of Thirty Six from the Vault is R. J. B. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.